this episode, Justice League International number 11, cover dated March 1988. Welcome to the 11th episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's Eardemel Shag, and I'm your host. But guess what? I brought along a friend. In fact, each episode I invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of JLI. My co-host today could be considered the filthiest man in comic podcasting because he likes his books big and long. Folks, please help me welcome the host of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Mr. Kyle Benning. Welcome to the Embassy, Kyle. Thanks for being here. How you doing? Well, I'm doing all right, I guess, before you kind of kidnap me and drug me here. Friend. I don't know what type of friends uh, you put in handcuffs stuff in the trunk of a car and drag to some shitty little embassy with dirty ceiling tiles, but yeah, I guess it's good to be here. <laughs> the guest puts the lotion on the skin or gets the hose, buddy. <laughs> And we're off to a great start. You know, I was going to start off the show by pointing out to you that there's a lot of pressure on you here, man. Because, you know, the last couple episodes of the show, i got to say, I've been quite proud of. You know, we had episode 10 with Michelle Fife, a comic professional, where he defended Millennium. And that was, he was phenomenal in that one. And then the next month, we had J.M.D. Mateus himself, the writer of of Justice League. And then, you know, following up on that is you, buddy. So, a lot of pressure. Don't screw it up, please. And we start right off with uh, kidnapping and Silence of the Lambs jokes. Great way to get rolling. Yeah, well... If you go back and look at it's either Twitter or Facebook when I think it was episode 10 came out and you announced that you're going to have J.M. DeMatteis interview on that. I think I even had a comment that, God, I bet whoever you get next sucks. So <laughs> that got quite a few likes and retweets. So a bunch of people must have agreed without even knowing it was me or maybe they didn't know and just knew that, yeah, that Kyle guy sucks. But Self-fulfilling prophecy. We'll try not to drop the ball. Well, you know what? Well, maybe spoilers uh, to when we get into our coverage. Maybe if I do suck, it'll be in this issue uh, or this episode's a little uh, lack. Cluster, maybe that's uh, a little fitting for the episode or, or the issue we're covering. Wow, somebody taking a knock at my beloved JLI. All right, folks, we're going to have to see how this plays out. But before we go much further, we probably should take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 40% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we're going to select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, this will be tied to um, that month's JLI issue, or in some way, shape, or form. Now, I picked JLA, not Justice League of America, but JLA, Volume 17. Oh my gosh, there's so many things there. Syndicate Rules Trade Paperback. Now, this is the collection of, it's JLA 107 to 114. This is when Kurt Busiek was writing the book and Ron Garney was drawing it. They fought the Crime Syndicate, so it collects those, and JLA Secret Files 2004. It was a great storyline. Kurt Busiek did a fantastic job on this run of JLA. Really enjoyed it, but the specific reason I included it was because, first of all, Kurt Busiek's awesome. Second of all, because the JLA foe in that storyline, uh, well, besides the crime syndicate, is the construct. And, hmm, that might just play a role in today's issue. Page count is 200 pages. It's full color. Normally retails for $17.99. You can get an in-stock trades right now for $10.43. What a steal. You save 42%. Again, Kurt Music, Ron Garney, 200 pages, crime syndicate, the construct. Really? Seriously? Do I need to press you to buy this? You should already have it. Kyle, now, put it to you. Did you happen to bring an in-stock trades recommendation? It's not It's not required. Required, but, you know, all the cool kids have done it. I sure did. Come on, I'm not a newbie here. This is like <laughs> the tenth time I've appeared on this network. So uh, You count them? My in-stock, 
I'm just throwing out a ballpark there. Okay. <laughs> Actually, it'd be a lot higher than that after you count in kind of retroactively all the Secret Origins appearances. And I did, I appeared like 10 times on Ryan's two Star Wars shows. So you got to count the times I came and visited you and sat in your recording studio and did a little, That's you know, true. Did a little bit with you. I think this is like the seventh time we recorded together. Oh my gosh. That makes it eight too many. Anyway, what's your book? Tales of the New Gods trade paperback. Mm. So listen to this, this summary here. Don't miss this new volume featuring the greatest new God stories by a who's who of all star creators <laughs> recognized as one of Jack Kirby's greatest creations. The new gods now play an integral role in the DC universe. Rediscover the classic tales of young Scott free dark side Orion and more in the soft cover collecting stories from the Mr. Miracle special Jack Kirby's fourth world number two through 20 and Orion number three and four, six and eight, 10, 12, 15 and 18 through 19. Plus a never before published short story by Mark Millar with art by Steve Ditko and Mick Gray. It's 168 pages, full color. Uh, the cover price is 19.99. In stock trades price is 11.59. That's 42% off for 168 great pages by the likes of Mark Avenir, John Byrne, Walt Simonson, Jeff Lowe, Steve Rude, Dave Gibbons, and Art Adams. Wow. That is, yeah. And so uh, that's actually the only place I think you can get any of the uh, Jack Kirby Fourth World issues by Byrne. I think that's the only place any of that material has been collected. That sounds so. really, really interesting. I mean, it sounds a bit schizophrenic with like the it's when you get into the specific issue numbers because it's like all over the board. But you know, it sounds like a great collection. Wow, that's really cool. Yep. So uh, I actually I uh, just ordered this uh, today myself. So wait for it to to arrive. And it sounds like there might be some new god stuff in the story that makes it all come together. Perfect. Well, I mean, quit trying to spoil stuff, but Mister Miracle, he's the main part of uh, okay. JLI lineup. Yeah, sneaky little way to do that. All right. Anyway, folks, for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now we're going to be talking about issue number eleven in just a moment. But in the meantime, if you want to join the conversation, if you want to chime in and tell us why you think issue 11 is great or why that trade paperback is great or why you think Kyle's just an embarrassment to have on the network for the, of the eighth time or whatever it is, be sure to hit us up on the social media. You can find us on Twitter as JLI Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Justice League International Blahaha Podcast. Also, you can use our hashtag, which is pound FW Podcasts. Please, we really want your feedback. You guys have become a real integral part of this show. I mean, me and a guest talk and ramble forever. I mean, I'm, I'm usually kind of making sense. The guest, you know, it's a crapshoot there. But either way, the, the feedback you guys provide really help build this community, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a community of JLI fans around this show. So let's keep it going. Now, we move on to the lamest part of the show, which is where we actually let Kyle talk for a while. It's in his contract. I had no choice. I'm sorry, folks. I apologize in advance. So, Kyle, I'm going to ask you two questions. Please give us answers that make sense. First, what is your own personal origin story with the JLI? Like, how did you discover the book, and why did you fall in love with it? Well, I guess before that, I should probably just get into my comics origin in general. So, Oh, my gosh. We don't have a monk, Kyle. Good gravy. <laughs> why, why, why does Rob put up with this shit? This is probably why you get stuck farming this out and uh, behind the curtain. Why uh, I'll be recording with Rob in a couple nights. He doesn't want to talk to your ass. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so my comics origin started probably four or five, and I inherited a ton of comics from my dad's youngest brothers. The majority of those were Incredible Hulk and Fantastic Four and G.I. Joe and Transformers. Those were the four big long runs that I had. Uh, Fantastic Four and Hulk go from mid-70s up to the, the late 80s, right around this time. And then a whole gamut of DC who's who issues, a couple of random issues of Crisis and Superman, including those awesome Radio Shack uh, free giveaways with the Kids. <laughs> yeah, those are my... I love those 
things. Those were probably my first exposure to Superman. And so I had a lot more Marvel comics, but just because of the who's who and just what is this big grand event of this crisis on Infinite Earths that I had random issues of, I just fell in love with the DC characters, even though I had much more Marvel comics. And I just, from that point on, was a, a DC kid. And so growing up in the, the early 90s would have been when I was buying comics, I guess. And, uh, well, you worked in a comic shop, you know, if uh, you were used to kind of mid-70s to mid-80s kind of classic house style uh, approach of the Bronze Age of those characters and you were going to go try to buy something in the vein that emulated that so off the newsstands you'd probably be left scratching your head hey that's not what Wolverine looks like <laughs> and so I didn't really buy uh, too many new comics so it was just typically DC because for the most part they didn't indulge themselves in the 90s uh, excess of course there's always uh, exceptions to that like that shitty Bloodlines crossover which apparently ensnared Frank <laughs> but uh, don't forget Extreme Justice <laughs> yeah so picked up the random Superman issues but a lot of my kind of new comics buying would come in, you know, the kind of repackaged comic multi-packs that were on the store like at Walmart or garage sales, hitting up garage sales every summer. And so that's where I came across uh, the first 12 issues and the first annual from Justice League slash Justice League International. I picked those up probably when I was six or seven. Oh, maybe. Wow. And that was my Justice League. That was probably really my first exposure to the Justice League. And I've never really been too much of a, a team book guy, which might sound surprising with Fantastic Four being probably my biggest Marvel collection and my favorite thing at Marvel. And you're a big Legion fan too, sir. Yes, yes. Well, I don't really view Fantastic Four as a team-up book. That's more of a family dynamic, and I try to pick out who my favorite character is from that, and I really can't pick one. I kind of have to have the whole team together for it to really click for me. Yeah, and so I, I just that. kind of view their, their aesthetic as a character unto itself. And yes, I do like the Legion. I do like the JSA. Oh. But Justice League and the Avengers, for some reason, you've watched all those comic documentaries, like the stuff on Ultimate Avengers, and they get Mark Millar or Miller talking all Scottish, like, oh, you picked a dead book because they had everybody in it. And you had 15 heroes for 25 cents. That's a terrible accent, but, you know, he's terrible. So, anyway. But that never really clicked for me. For me, it was always anthology books, like, you know, the, the big DC Giants, 80-page Giants, 100-page Giants, which obviously I have a, a sick affection for. And uh, it's, the Dollar, it's definitely the, the, Dollar, the Dollar Comics uh, era of World Finest, I, I inherited a ton of those, and that's probably kind of my favorite era. era of DC would be probably 76 to 96. I realize that's a, a huge jump, but kind of the aesthetic changes throughout that, but it kind of still has the same core feel to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anthology books is really kind of where I fell in love with. But that JLI, that, that 13 issue run, the, the 12 issues and the one, you know, that still to me is my definitive Justice League. I've tried to pick it up, you know, from time to time and just never really been able to get into any run except this one. Awesome. I, in fact, I used to, this was like four years ago now at this point, I actually used to write a weekly column at the Outsiders mm-hmm. or Outhousers, excuse me, the Outhousers website, which probably most notable for having the, has DC done something stupid lately? <laughs> and uh, so I, I checked out their website today for the first time in forever just to kind of look up that article and make sure I didn't say anything too stupid in it. And outside of a few uh, typos and spelling errors, which I'm not even sure were from me. I think maybe they botched that when they uploaded it. But uh, anyway. Oh, right. I'm sure that's how it works. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I wasn't dealing with them directly 
exactly. I was going for like two different people. You never know. They could have each one of them could have tried to edit it and jack it all up. But uh, when I when I checked on uh, in that website today, apparently it's been 81 or 83 days since DC's done something stupid. It used to be like four hours, so that's good on them. Rebirth's been pretty good. Yeah, they have been. I've really been loving their stuff lately. I would write a weekly article kind of called Retro Reviews, and how that started is at the time uh, when I started doing that, we were kind of living in the Des Moines area, and there was a small comic book shop I went there, which was the best of the three or four comic shops in the, the area, and they really pushed a lot of diverse folks. That was definitely when my reading was really at the, the peak as far as picking up independence and trying new stuff, and they were kind of big-time uh, DC fanboys, so obviously uh, not real pleased with New 52 around 2011, 2012, 2013, and they had a lot of disgruntled customers as well, and so how it started is I would take a focus or kind of a spotlight a old series that might hit the aesthetic that people were missing from their comics and then say, well, and you can check out these four trades or these four hardcovers and give someone who needed that superhero fix scratched and try something that was still in print but decades old. And so that's kind of the start of the retro reviews. And I think I, I let it off with kind of doing, and I'd work kind of history lessons into that too or kind of cover comics history. Comic shop owner I was doing that for, he started writing a kind of an opinion piece every week for outhousers about, you know, how it sucks trying to be a comic retailer in the current landscape. Uh, he happened to sh- pass on one of my articles to the, to the guy he was dealing with at the outhousers website and the guy loved it. And so they started incorporating my weekly article that I did for the uh, comic shop newsletter onto their site. I think the first one I had go up there was all about the fireside books, uh, specifically the uh, bring on the bad guys, the third one, which right. Rob and I talked about uh, probably like three or four years ago now at this point. Uh, Fire and water podcast. Yeah, hasn't been that long. Yeah, on the Firewater Podcast. So I uh, also talked about the uh, Wade Garney Captain America, which you mentioned mm. Ron Garney uh, in Stock Trades pick. And that Love is, that run. Yep. Did one on the Justice League International, did one on mm-hmm. the 70s All-Star Comics uh, revival. Oh, so good. Yeah. But uh, those articles are still out there. I, I think uh, eventually what happened is the the guy that uh, my comic shop guy was dealing with, he left the website, and so both of our articles just disappeared then at that, at that point as far as new content going up. So I think there's only six or seven of the ones I wrote made it on the website, but oh, okay. they're still out there, so go get those a check or a look if you're bored and haven't before. <laughs> awesome. Well, now that you've finished dictating at least two chapters of your autobiography there... Um... Well, I drug it out just because you're an ass about it. <laughs> This is why I invite my friends around, folks. Um, could you please tell us? Are you are you sure you know what that word means? You keep saying friends, but again, I'm here with in handcuffs, strapped to a chair. I'd... <laughs> you know, it means something different to everyone. So I guess. How do I know my color blue is the same color? Blue? Anyway, who are your favorite JLI members? Now, try to narrow it down somewhere between like one to three. Well, I would say just looking at uh, my favorite characters that were in the book at, at any time or up to this point, it'd have to be Captain Marvel, Doctor Fate, and Batman. But Mm. you know, obviously Captain Marvel and Doctor Fate are gone already, so yeah. I would go with Batman and then the uh, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold dynamic. Okay, the two of them bring together. So Booster and Beetle consistently come out on top on this. Now Batman doesn't get mentioned that often. That's interesting. I mean, people love Batman, and a lot of people go through a Batman phase, but he doesn't get mentioned necessarily in regard to the JLI all the time. So that's a, that's an interesting pick. Well, you know what? I think right now, just kind of in our community of friends, mm-hmm. it seems to kind of be like a, a born again Batman revival going around. I mean. 
mean, Michael Bailey and uh, Andy Leyland just announced this week that they're uh, going to have a Batman podcast. J. David Weider's got his new uh, Dave Cave Batman podcast. Obviously, Ryan and Chris have the Nightcast. Yep. God, I think I've, I feel like I'm missing someone. But uh, our friend Stella does the Batgirl to Oracle podcast yes. over on the yep. BatmanUniverse.net. I mean, well, there's a million Batman podcasts out there, but like, right in our circle of friends, there's, been, there's definitely been a lot lately. And Batman's one of those characters that uh, there's a lot of eras I really like. I haven't really liked the last whatever 17 years or so. <laughs> but uh, some of his fans, being as a Superman fan uh, primarily, there's a lot of vocal uh, Batman fans kind of get under my skin sometimes, especially since uh, DC and Warner Brothers uh, seems like they're intent on pitting the two characters against each other. Uh, <laughs> they made but, a uh, movie about it and everything. <laughs> oh, that's what that was called? Yeah, uh, yeah. Train wreck? Yeah. Um, Ouch. <laughs> Anyway, all these different podcasts popping up in the last year have really kind of been scratching many of my different uh, Batman itches and niches that I, I really love. And so, so I've been reading a ton of, uh, you'll love this, Sandy Haney, uh, Batman Braid in the Bull comics lately. So and much then fun. I took my uh, little guy, which met uh, my son Blaze, yep. who's about two and three quarters right now, uh, to the uh, Lego Batman movie. Oh. Uh, just this past weekend, he absolutely loved that. And uh, he is now, <laughs> he is convinced that he is Batman. Oh, he gosh. refers to himself in the third person as Batman. Batman wants to go outside. Batman has to go potty. Batman wants fruit snacks. <laughs> That's awesome. I was uh, making dinner and he said, Daddy, I want to watch uh, Batman. So we've been watching a lot of love Batman Brave and the Bold. He's like, I want to watch me as Batman on TV. So he even thinks he's the Batman Brave and the Bold. Uh, but uh, so since he's been in such a big uh, Batman mood, uh, then I pulled out uh, all the songs on uh, YouTube the other day of the uh, Power Records uh, Justice League song and stories. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Oh, my God. He loves the Metamorpho and Plastic, Plastic Man song. Like, <laughs> sings them. He just walks around going, Metamorpho, Metamorpho. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And That's like one of the greatest this songs This is the story too. of the element man, Metamorpho, Metamorpho. So it's been a blast. <laughs> he is a kid so. after my own heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so I've been in a big uh, Batman mood lately, and then uh, after listening to the uh, latest issue, uh, our latest episode of, of Nightcast, where uh, uh, Ryan and Chris covered uh, the uh, detective issue, was it like five seventy nine? I have that written down. Somewhere. I, I, I lose five. the numbers, but it's the Mike W. Bar Allen Davis stuff. Yes, Mike W. Bar Allen Davis, and they're talking about you know how lighthearted that was and all the joking go around. Batman was pretty lighthearted in this issue. Spoilers uh, when we get into it, but uh, he cracks a few wise ones, even uh, hints over the the to Black Canary for a little bit, and so coming after off of uh, listening to that and then rereading that issue and then jumping in here, there's a lot more of a, a lighthearted kind of team player Batman that we saw in that issue and then saw in this issue as well, and so I'm like, you know what, I'm going to throw Batman in there. Alright, alright, fair enough. It's a good choice. Well, you talked about some comics you do like there, and you mentioned some comics you're not a big fan of, but you know what, I think we can both agree there were a whole bunch of good comics in 1987, so why don't we get to the segment I like to call... Monitor Duty. This is where we're going to cover other comics that were on the shelf the same month as this issue of JLI that features JLI members. So, this particular comic, Justice League International number 11, was on sale November 10th, 1987. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. So, other titles featuring JLI members on the shelves in November 1987. So, here we go. We're going to roll through these. Now, if you look at it as sort of a team macro scale, the whole JLI, they were featured in a handful of books, and that's because they were all tied to the glorious Millennium miniseries. Uh, specifically, Millennium number 8 was on the shelf this month by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten was the uh, the great conclusion which you know gave us that book that everyone celebrates the new guardians <coughs> <coughs> yeah 
Okay. Then there were several JLI cameos, and again, all because of Millennium. For example, Blue Beetle number 22 featured, of course, our hero, Blue Beetle. Uh, this was by Len Wein and Ross Andrew, but also had more little JLI cameos. Plus, Blue Beetle battled Kronos, while Chicago swaps places with a prehistoric landmass. So lots of dinosaurs. Rah, rah, rah. And for more information on Blue Beetle, please check out the brand new Beetle Mania podcast. That's right. Blue Beetle's got a podcast, folks, with hosts Jay Jones and Tim Wallace, our buddy Tim Wallace, former guest on this show. Or, of course, you can check out Tim's blog, Court Industries. Then, uh, also on the shelves, another JLI cameo was in Firestorm number 69, all again tied to Millennium. Uh, for more information on Firestorm, you can check out a podcast called Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast. That sounds pretty good. I bet there might be a really dead sexy host on that one. Hmm. Um, uh, that's kind of weird to talk about Rob that way. But, oh! Right Alright, next we have Action Comics number 597 by John Byrne. This is a cameo in the simplest form. Uh, I believe the sole appearance of the uh, Justice League is uh, a Batman and Martian Manhunter cameo in a thought bubble. <laughs> so, uh, for more on Superman from this era, be sure to check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast by Michael Bailey, past guest of the show, and his co-host Jeffrey Taylor. <clears throat> I'm a bit of a cletus for like Firestorm appearances, and I'll make sure I buy every appearance of Firestorm. And a lot of times, he's just like sort of like what you just mentioned there it's a flashback or he's even in the background of a scene and not even color but like you know I'll be on this quest for this comic for months and when I finally get it I'm like seriously seriously that's all it was oh that was wasted time alright let's let's dive into the individual member of JLI uh, Batman number 417 was on the shelves featuring our Dark Knight detective and this is by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo and folks this is part one of Ten Nights of the Beast how is that in the same month same month Detective Comics number 583 which was the very first issue written by John Wagner and Alan Grant. And, you know, on top of that, art by Norm Brayfogle. What an amazing kickoff for uh, a good several months of Batman stuff. You, you sounded uh, pretty high on that. So, hey, would you say that this was, this was your Batman phase? It, well, my Batman phase came just slightly after this, but it was all tied in with this. So, yeah, I love this stuff. Oh, yeah. Next one I want to mention is the Saga of Ra's al Ghul, third issue of that four-issue miniseries uh, that reprints the classic Batman versus Ra's or Ra's al Ghul story that was also reprinted in limited collector's edition C-51 which, of course, was covered on the third episode of your pal Rob's Treasury Cast. What's that? Never heard of it. Don't know. Rob does a show? Ah, whatever. Now, folks, for more information about Batman during this era, please check out on our network the show that Kyle has pimped to death already, uh, Batman Nightcast. And that's by Chris Franklin, who's a past guest of this show. And uh, I'd mention Chris's co-host, Ryan Daly, except Ryan's uh, pretty much too good to listen to this show anymore nowadays. And even though he was a guest on the step, just saying. You know what? I have to peel back the curtain a little bit here. I had to pimp their show because I didn't necessarily know it was going to be mentioned. So, if you ever podcasted with Shag uh, specifically for the JLI podcast, he sends you like 15 pages of notes, and he has in here, you know, all these other podcasts he's going to reference. Lo and behold, we get to the Batman section, and he has for like the Batman Network was the show he was going to plug. I'm like, what the hell? You have a Batman podcast on your network feed for this era of Batman, and you're going to pimp someone else? What, the, what, what is wrong with you? Okay, well, in my own defense, well, the 15 pages, by the way, is just to make sure you, I, I don't trust the guests, quite frankly. It's like dealing with children. You just you need to make sure you manage them properly. But anyway. Well, you know what? Maybe your guests would be a little more cooperative. Again, if you didn't put them in handcuffs, throw them in a trunk and drag them here, <laughs> and then call them friend for two hours. <laughs> but the Batman references that you're talking about, the BatmanUniverse.net, was, that was just copied from a previous version of this stuff. And go back a couple months in time, the Nightcast didn't exist, so I couldn't reference it back then. So this, you know, it's been like two or three months since I've done a regular episode because we had the, you know, the anniversary special. Okay. Just leave okay, me alone. You know what? You, you know what? The, the last time there was a regular issue was January. I'm pretty sure the Nightcast launched in like October or November. So. Right, that's it. I'm getting the hose. You're getting the hose. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Also on the shelf, Suicide Squad number ten by John Ostrander and Luke McDonald. I mean, I, Batman's in it, but like, even if he's not, you should have been reading it anyway. It's so good. Batman infiltrates Bell Rev and uncovers the secret of the Suicide Squad in that issue. Oh, and it's all leading to issue number thirteen, which we are going to talk about on this show in a few months. Anyway, for more information on Suicide Squad, please check out Aaron Head Moss's show, Task Force X Podcast. Then we've got also this month Captain Adam number twelve and Captain Adam Annual number one, both by Carrie Bates and Greg Wiseman and Pat Broderick. And this introduces Major Force and refrigerators in the DC universe will never be the same. For more information on Captain Adam, please check out Jay Jones's coverage over on the Silver and Gold podcast and his blog, The Splitting Adams Blog. And then Green Arrow number two by Mike Grell and Ed Hannigan. This is the second issue of the ongoing series by Grell, and it does feature Black Canary as a co-star of the book. And we're getting closer, folks. We're almost there to the point where Black Canary is going to leave the JLI for good uh, in favor of the Green Arrow book. Hmm. For more on Green Arrow, check out the Warlord Worlds podcast by our good friends Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Or for more on Black Canary, check out the Power Fishnets podcast by some guy who I don't want to mention again because he's already been named like 17 times. Last book I'm going to mention is Secret Origins number 24. One half of that book was uh, headlined by Dr. Fate, and that's by Roy Thomas and Michael Baer. And uh, for more information on Dr. Fate, you can always check out the Lords of Order podcast by our friend Ed Moore. Or check out the Secret Origins podcast, episode number 24, where Ryan Daly... Oh, God, that guy again. Anyway. Yeah, Ryan someone da- should not mention him. I know. Ryan Daly's coverage of this story, and I'm pretty confident he had a really dapper guest host on that episode who has a, a bit of a thing for Dr. Fate. So I'm just saying, and I'm not talking about Kyle. Well, I think you're kind of misremembering that, because uh, that was a really great podcast, but I recall uh, the guest really dropping the ball on that one, and that probably being the weak link in an otherwise perfect podcast series. Oh my gosh. You are so full of it, sir. Just read your crappy little books you want to mention, please. All right. Uh, last two I want to mention, Adventures of Superman, number 438, which went on sale November 24th, 1987. That is the first post-crisis appearance of Brainiac, and then also on sale that day, the Superman Greatest Stories Ever Told hardcover, which collected a ton of great stories of Superman over at that point, close to a 50-year publishing here history. And the reason uh, both of those have a special place in my heart is that was actually the day I was born. So. Oh, wow. Jeez. Okay. Making me feel old. Man, you make Chad Bogleman look old. Jeez. I know. I know. He's got me by seven months. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Well, you know, you know what? You're only as old as you feel, and luckily for me, I wake up every day and feel like I'm about 50. <laughs> well, on that note, I think what we're going to do is go get my friend Kyle some Geritol. While we're doing that, we're going to play a podcast promo break for some different shows. Hopefully not Kyle's. And then when we come back, we're going to get probably into... be the best. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to get into Justice League International number 11. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire and Water podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. 
coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we're back. And folks, if you want to follow along, be sure to head out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. And out there, you will see a post for issue number 11. You also see one called issue number 11, gallery post. And on that page, we will post several panels from this issue. So when we reference a particular panel or spend a lot of time talking about Maxwell Lord's smile, you can see it out there on our website. Now, here we go. Justice League International, number 11, published by DC Comics, cover dated March 1988, cover price 75 cents, three shiny quarters, folks, cover by Kev McGuire and Al Gordon. You want to tell us about the cover, Kyle? Yeah, this one's uh, pretty gorgeous. we got a big robotic hand driving and squeezing the members of the Justice League International. we got uh, Booster Gold starting to fall off the bottom of the hand, then we see Batman and Mr. Miracle and Martian Manor definitely getting the squeeze. Black Canary definitely looks uncomfortable. And then Blue Beetle is getting squeezed so hard that his uniform turned white. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I mean, they yeah, totally got is. the colors wrong on Blue Beetle. Yeah. Now, they fixed it on the trade paperback. So the the, the version they're going to see on the website is going to look fine because that's where I'm going to grab the image from. But uh, it, it really is very strange. It's all, it's all They inverted them. They've got the light colors in the wrong places and the dark colors. Well, actually, it's just the, the colors wrong altogether, really. Yeah. Bat- Batman's colors off, too, instead of going to be in blue and black. It's purple. Eh, well, it's, I think it's probably in line with what we see in the book, though, because they always did do- color his costume really, really dark, 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 almost purple-blue inside the book when Kevin McGuire was doing it. So I, I'm not... I as... gotta disagree. It's a completely different shade inside than does the outside. It's kind of oh more of a classic gosh. blue in this issue. The blue looks like it's the same as what's used on Black Canary's outfit. Oh, it is the same as Martian Manhunter's cape, isn't it? Interesting. Yeah. yeah, he is a darker blue. Okay, well, it doesn't bother me because we've seen versions of Batman that color. So, the Blue Beetles is just completely off. Now, uh, one of the things I like about this is it really demonstrates that the JLI is in trouble with the bad guy on this cover. You know, you, you really... It gives you the sense that they're kind of screwed. Uh, however, this scene never really appears in the book, and really the mechanical bad guy that we're going to talk about doesn't really prove to be much of a threat to them. So the cover's a little bit misleading. I mean, it's it, I don't mind. Covers are supposed to entice you rather than necessarily tell the story. Now, I'm biased here, because when I bought Justice League International, I bought the trade paperbacks, the first two. So for the first 12 issues, I didn't really own the individual issues for years. In fact, some of them I just bought recently. In fact, honestly, this, this issue... I only bought the hard copy very, very recently because I've had it in a, in a hard, you know, in the trade paperback collection all these years. That's how I read it. And for me, I, this is either a not necessarily memorable cover or maybe it's just my exposure where I didn't get exposed to this cover very much. Now, if you had this cover, which I believe you said earlier, I was kind of taking a nap, but earlier I believe you said you, you had those issues that you got. Of, of, of the covers you remember from when you initially re- read this run, would you consider this one kind of the iconic ones you remember? Or is this one of the ones that looks pretty but not necessarily as memorable? Uh, I would say it's it's pretty memorable. I mean, it's uh, okay. uh, definitely something unique. I mean, this isn't like a, a type of cover or pose you would see repeatedly. And, you know, outside of the, the coloring errors, at least everyone looks on model. The last issue with the, the Millennium Time, I've never liked that cover. Everybody seems a little stumpy and short. So that one sticks out just because it seems like something's off, whereas this one sticks out because it's a unique cover layout and everything looks in order except for the colors. Okay. All right. So it's, it probably comes down to just my lack of exposure to this cover. Uh, I did just notice for the first time, though, poor Ted Cord. He's uh, got his nose rammed into Black Canary's armpit. 
So well, she uses secret by Dove, so she should be all right. I was gonna say. I mean, I was hoping she kind of, you know, had some protection going there. So all right, very good. All right. Well, uh, you want to take us through the creative team and the recap, sir? Yeah. So we have plot and layouts by Keith Giffen, script by J.M. DeMatteis, DeMatteis, penciler by <laughs> Kevin McGuire. That's a Michael Baylor reference for you. Uh, anchor Al Gordon, letter John Workman. Now, interesting there. That's a bit of a change. Yeah, it wasn't usually Bob Levin. Yeah, yeah, almost exclusively. So very different. And it's not like the lettering's bad in this one, but. Uh, Lapin or Lapin, however you say his name, had sort of like an italic way of doing certain things that just really jumped off the page. So again, the lettering's not bad, but I, I think you can, if you compare it side by side with some others, it's a little bit missing, I think. Colorist was Gene D'Angelo and editor was Andy Helfer. The story title is Constructions, which is hard for my brain to say because I look at that word and it's one letter away from Constructicons, from Transformers, <laughs> and all I want to just say, prepare for extermination. Anyway. <laughs> by, by the way, I, I am wearing a Transformers shirt today. I wore my Decepticon shirt specifically mm-hmm. for you. So, Well, that's the way to go. I mean, my favorite uh, Transformer is Soundwave and his face is the model for the Decepticon emblem, so... It all works out. Uh, well, yeah, I l- always loved the way the Transformers. We're, I'm totally off base here now, but whatever. The Marvel comic issue number five with that painted sh- uh, shockwave cover shock- with the Transformers. All you said, Soundwave. Oh, I was yep. Shockwave. Oh, sound- no one likes Soundwave. You like Soundwave? The jukebox. Everybody likes Soundwave. He's a one man army. He has like he can store like six different guys in his chest. Nobody Plus, he's got the, the, the sweetest voice effect of anybody in the entire series. The, the fan effect. Yeah, he does have a good sound effect, but, like, no, he's the, he's the ghetto blaster. Nobody likes the ghetto blaster. Oh, my gosh. You're an idiot. You don't know anything. And the I tapes, say, the, the tapes the, that come out of him, like, the, 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 the four most popular Decepticons are Megatron, Soundwave, Shockwave, and Starscream. Um, he's one of the, the top four. Oh, wait, a top Decepticon or, or, or Transformers? Top Decepticon. Okay, I was going to say, you're not putting him above Optimus Prime, I hope. Oh, no, that's okay. a given. Auto, Autobots transform and roll out. You know, that's, you know, he's not he's not going to beat that. little uh, sidebar here while we're talking about Transformers. So I mentioned we've been watching a lot of Brave and Bold. Yeah. My son also loves Transformers, so we've been watching a lot of the original G1 cartoons and stuff. So he will just randomly like come up to me like when I'm napping and do the... Robots in disguise into my face. <laughs> but uh, he also loves dinosaurs, and my my favorite episode was uh, SOS Dinobots, which was like the, the seventh or eighth episode of the series. And so there's a part in that that's like my favorite line from the entire series is uh, Wheeljack and Ratchet, they decide they're going to make the Dinobots. And so they make the Dinobots after they've found some dinosaur fossils, and the grumpy little Autobot, little yellow semi-huffer says, Dinobots, huh? I thought you were supposed to make dinosaurs. <laughs> my son's picked up that line. He'll just walk around the house saying that. But, oh, anyway. my gosh. Well, here, I've got a message for you. Grimlock want to talk about Justice League. So let's get to it, buddy. <laughs> uh, just, I will never mention Transformers again as long as I never have to hear that voice impression. That was, <laughs> it was atrocious. That was oh, spot on. It was dead on. Greg, Greg Berger wants to kill himself after hearing that. <laughs> talk about Maxwell Lord, damn it. Just get going. Okay. All right. The story opens on Maxwell Lord welcoming Martian Manhunter and Captain Adam into his office after returning from successfully saving the universe during the Manhunter robot invasion during the Millennium Event. When Max learns that the other heroes that stood by the Justice League, like Superman, Hawkman, and Hal Jordan, as seen in the previous issue, won't be joining the team permanently, Max absolutely loses his shit. Starts screaming like a psychopathic madman that we would eventually learn he was in Countdown to Infinite Crisis roughly 20 years after the story. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
Martian Manhunter manages to talk Max down, and Max uh, starts to explain that he needs the heavy hitters of the DCU to save him from a supervillain that's on his tail. And as he goes into more detail off-panel, we check into the JLI headquarters in New York City as Black Canary gives the new Rocket Red member of the JLI, Dimitri, the grand tour. That tour is interrupted when Oberon informs Canary that an A1 trouble alert has just come in from Max's office. So they quickly assemble the team in the last of Star Labs shuttle uh, superplanes and take off for Max's office. On the way, Booster manages to puke all over and Ted makes a Moby Dick joke just as the shuttle arrives at its destination, where they are warmly greeted by some heat-seeking missiles. Luckily, Batman knows that the skyscraper is pretty much empty except for Max's office, and he instructs Ted to ram their shuttle into the building. And since the missiles came from the building itself, they veer off and apparently just head somewhere else, where we assume they are detonated without anyone being hurt. We never really see that. (laughs) Once inside, the team quickly locates Captain Adam, who is wrestling with some mechanical arms that are powered by the building itself. After some blast by Rocket Red and Black Canary's sonic scream proven effective, Dinah orders Guy to blast an outlet with the strongest shot of powering energy he can muster. We're at the halfway point, so I'll take it from here. So Guy Gardner successfully uses his ring to push a power surge through the electrical system of the building, effectively frying everything that's plugged in. With the immediate threat disabled, the Justice League pull themselves back together. Black Canary even takes a moment to brag to Batman that as team leader, she resolved the situation without consulting the all-knowing Dark Knight. The scene ends with Maxwell Lord saying he owes the Justice League some answers. Next up, we are flying en route to the source of Max's problems. The Justice League are discussing the situation, and Max claims he's being watched by some quote-unquote outside force that's controlling his computer system, and that this outside force is out to get him. Batman doesn't really buy Max's story. Too much is there's too much scattered info. Things don't really add up. And Max was able to provide them the exact location of this outside force for the Just League to investigate. It just seems a little too convenient. So the JLI track down the power source that Max has directed them towards, and while flying over some mountains, an enormous robot explodes out of the ground to attack the Justice League airship. It's the old JLA foe called the Construct. Now several Justice League members leap out of the ship to battle the robot, while Batman, Beetle, Black Canary, and Mr. Miracle take the ship into battle. All the while, the battle's being watched by this outside force via the monitor screens. It's the same computer-like voice that we've been seeing all along talking to Max throughout the series. Now, the Justice League have put a hurting on the Construct, and the quote-unquote outside voice has ordered the Construct to return to base. This outside force... Okay, you know what? I, I just can't keep calling it that. We're going to call him Evil Computer. or but, Evil Pewter. That's what we're going to call him from now on. Okay. Hey, Pewter. <laughs> Try that with your iPhone, by the way. Anyway... Uh, I've done that. My son loves that. Yeah, we- what can I do, Lego Batman, sir? <laughs> exactly. So the evil pewter seems very happy with the results of the battle, even though the construct's losing. Then suddenly the evil pewter is interrupted. Someone off-panel has arrived and is demanding from the evil pewter to explain what is going on. So we are privy then to a conversation between the evil pewter and this new visitor, whom is clearly the evil pewter's boss, but he's off-screen. We can't see him. The evil pewter is planning to blame the Justice League, stating that Justice League has turned him, evil pewter, into their slave. The evil pewter even claimed the Justice League forced him to secure international status for them as Justice League International. Uh, then it goes on to show the master that uh, the evil pewter has been forced to create robot duplicates of like President Reagan and other world leaders. Again, claiming the Justice League is forcing him to do all of these things. Bottom line, the evil pewter is framing the Justice League for all of its evil actions. 
However, this visitor, the evil Peter's boss, can sort of tell something's fishy. In fact, the boss senses a spark of sentience in the evil Peter that doesn't belong. At that moment, the construct robot collapses through the ceiling of the evil Peter's cave lair. The robot is defeated, and the leaguers enter the cave unaware of what lurks inside. Finally, our heroes come face-to-face with the fury of the evil Pewter's boss. He is revealed to be a very, very angry new god, as in Jack Kirby's Fourth World, and he shouts, Who dares? Who dares threaten Metron? And Blue Beetle sheepishly replies, Um, we do, I guess? Up next, our first anniversary bombshell, Maxwell Lord, The Inside Story. Woof! And that is the issue. What would you think of it, my friend? Well, I guess starting off with the humor, uh, this issue is just chock full of what I would kind of consider Ghostbusters humor. There's a lot of neat little uh, gags. Ghostbusters is my favorite movie of all time, and I love all the lines that are like, shh, listen, do you smell something? There's a lot of stuff like that <laughs> going on uh, throughout this issue. Almost every page has got one. Yeah. You know, like on page two, we got a Gone with the Wind, or Gone Like the Wind crack. You know, we have Max's tirade uh, when he finds out that Superman, Hawkman, and Hal Jordan aren't going to be joining the Justice League. Right. He calls them, uh, he refers to them as weak-kneed uh, second stringers, and Martian Manhunter and Captain Adam are standing there, and probably outside of Superman at this point, they're probably the two next biggest heavy hitters in the DC Universe. They're definitely in the top five, I would say, the, the top five Absolutely. powerhouses at this point in the post-crisis. have got to be Superman, Captain Adam, Martian Manhunter. And probably Will Payton, Starman, and Firestorm, probably round out the, the top five. Did you say Captain Marvel as well? Yeah, he really hadn't had much development at this point. Uh, and they're, they're standing there. Hey, did you hear what he said about you? I don't know. He must have been talking about you. And nah, he must be talking about Blue, Blue Beetle. So that was a, a neat little exchange there. Uh, pages four and five, we get some great uh, banner and humor back and forth between Canary and Dimitri. Uh, the only thing that was missing was like a, in Soviet Russia, rec room wrecks you type thing. <laughs> I, I do like on that page how we, they do reveal, he opens his visor, because he says, you know, it's nice to see you as an ally. And she's like, what are you talking about? He opens his visor, and he's missing a tooth. And he says that they had met once before, and she kicked him in the face. So he's now missing a tooth because of that encounter, and he says, my my wife says the gap is charming. So I just love that, because, you know, if you guys remember, all the way back in episode three, I said, Black Canary kicked a a a rocket red in the face. Now put a pin in that, because we're going to talk about it later. This is where that comes to fruition, guys. Yes, uh, he's been around since issue number three. And uh, she knocked out his tooth, which is just so... He's so cute with that missing tooth. Yeah, and his wife likes it. Maybe uh, some of her relatives were on that uh, Russian hockey team that got their ass kicked by the U.S. in the 80 Olympics. <laughs> I also like there's a bit here where he says, Please, call me Dimitri, and your name is? And she says, Let's keep it Black Canary, shall we? I'm sure your wife will be happier that way. Which just... There's so much embedded in that statement. I mean, as far as you know, he, him talking about his wife earlier, her... Maybe I'm reading this wrong, but she just recognizes that she is internationally known as being a strikingly beautiful woman. And his wife's probably going to be uncomfortable with him working on the team with her. That's how I read that. I thought it was very funny. Uh, or it could just be simply she doesn't trust him because the last rocket read on the team turned out to be a manhunter. So it could go any number of ways. Uh, but then you jump forward to page 11 where she says, hang in there, Red. He goes, as you wish, Black. And she goes, oh, okay, Dimitri, you can call me Dinah. So it has a nice joke. It has a callback. It works very well. It's very funny. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, also on page five, can I get back to the Ghostbuster humor? Kind of have the uh, comic book crack. Apparently, Star Labs isn't real happy when uh, Mr. Miracle put the uh, last experimental space shuttle they had uh, through the roof of a building. And uh, <laughs> said, well, don't don't you always land uh, space shuttles on top of buildings? And, no, that's like something in a comic book. Is that a crack at Watchmen? Because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, uh, Night Owl would have been the Watchmen equivalent of Blue Beetle. And he's always landing the owl ship on rooftops, whereas Ted's uh, Beetle ship, isn't that primarily just kind of floats? And ladder drops uh. down from 
That's I interesting. That kind of, kind of a, a crack at the Watchman universe version of Blue Beetle there. I had not read it that way. That that would work very well. I was thinking more of the Avengers, because they take a couple of swipes at the Avengers later on in this book, too. That's, that's true. Could be. When Captain Adam's uh, doing stuff, and they, they're going into battle, and he decides they need a battle cry. So at one point he yells, Justice League, assemble! And then later on he calls them the Mighty Justice League, which are all plays on the Avengers. So I thought maybe this was another sort of swipe at the Avengers. Yes, and what I like about Justice League Assemble is the initials, obviously, are JLA. And for that. Ah, that's clever. Okay, yeah, that works. Nice. Pages six and seven when Booster barfs and Ted makes a Moby Dick joke. Classic uh, blue and gold humor there. <laughs> that thing is, it's a really weird moment. I mean, I like it. I like it quite a bit when Booster throws up. Uh, and again, it's it's from being teleported from the cave to the, the headquarters. He just he says, I made him sick. Because there's no payoff later. Usually with something like that, that's sort of like a foreshadowing of something later on, like the sick will come in either as a joke or part of the plot or whatever. It doesn't come up again. He just hurls, and that's it. Uh, someone does make a, a comment about him being queasy later, but uh, it sort of makes I don't know, it makes it feel a little more real. Because stuff like that happens in real life where something happens, and it doesn't mean anything later. It just happens. So I, I kind of like that. And also, I think it's fair to say, you know, in, in Booster's first few appearances in the Justice League, Batman was praising him every issue. He was always saying, like, that's a great idea, Booster, or Booster's a smart member of the team, whatever. Yeah, I think we're done with that. I think yeah. Booster's not getting any more praise from Batman at this point. Yeah, there's some great Batman moments in the uh, the plane right there. Yeah, like you said, there, there is a little bit of a payoff there because uh, Booster throws up, and then once they get inside of the, the building on page 9, the floor kind of gets ripped up there when the mechanical arms are going nuts on Captain Adam, and Booster says, hey, the floor, it's moving, and Mr. Miracle says, you're not going to throw up again, are you? So... <laughs> Well, ramming the building, oh my gosh, I mean, that was intense, and I love Batman, because Batman, he says ram the building three times, and each time, he's, well, the first two times, he just says, because we've got the missiles coming at him, and he just says, ram the building, he doesn't scream it until the third time when he finally has to order, he like yells at the top of his lungs, but the first two times, he's just saying, ram the building, you know, just very, almost matter of fact, which is like a crazy thought. And yet, uh, you know, it's very, all the windows blow out. It looks very diehard, you know, Nakatomi Plaza kind of sort of explosions. I remember reading it just going, oh my God, you know? Yeah, that was a really neat moment. Normally we kind of talk about story than art, but I got to mention the art on that scene. On page eight, when they're getting ready to ram in the middle panel, you see Mr. Miracle's face. He is, his jaw has pulled back. His mouth is hanging open. He is, you know, got a face like, oh my God, you know, as they're about to ram the building. I mean, the artistry in that. In fact, Mr. Miracle throughout this entire book is just, all of his facial expressions are just amazing through all of them. But this one especially just jumps out at me as it, that's not the kind of face you see someone draw in a comic. That sort of no. shock and horror look on their face. It's really well illustrated. Yes, and it's really surprising coming from Mr. Miracle because he's probably been in a lot tighter jams than most of them and seen some pretty awful things on Apocalypse <laughs> and trying to escape from there. So the fact that he's kind of shaken by it is adds some uh, kind of intensity, I guess, uh, atmosphere to yeah. the, uh, the whole moment. Yep. You've alluded to it a couple times in this episode already. Uh, Rocket Red's funny phrases. I love them. Good, good grief, good gravy, gosh willikers. I mean, it's, it's goofy, but it's, it reminds me why I love Dimitri so much. Dimitri is really a fun character. And it, it's funny, it's like, I guess I didn't really appreciate him until the reread. Back then, I guess I thought of him as the doofy dude. I don't know, but he is so funny. His, his wit is just a special brand, and it works so well in this book, and it is hilarious, and I'm so glad he's in the series. Yeah, he's got a ways to go to be the doofy dude at, at right now. I think uh, Guy pretty much has that uh, locked up. <laughs> at least for a few more issues. Yeah, yeah. 
there is some also some. It's worth mentioning. You talked about the funny bit between Captain Adam and Mr. Uh, Martian Manhunter. There's also some really good bits in here between Mr. Miracle and Blue Beetle, uh, yeah. and, and even Captain Adam. Really, they have a lot of really good bouncing off of each other. It's almost like I wonder if Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus were sort of playing around with what different combinations of characters worked. Because obviously, obviously Booster and Beetle did, but you know the blue and the gold wasn't really a thing yet. So they may have been still trying to figure out which character sort of connected best with each. But, I mean, they all have some fun banter in this one. Yeah, there's one where uh, Blue Beetle refers to uh, Mr. Miracle as M.M., and that kind of threw me for a while because when I see those two initials together, I think Martian Manhunter, I'm like, oh, no, he's talking to Mr. Miracle. Oh, yeah, good point. And now, uh, before we get really dive into the art, just got one big question here. So the construct, you know, the giant robot, he's goofy, looked sil- you know, looks very Silver Agey, which is great. I love that. But question for you, and, and and I know because we've discussed off air, both of us have read issue number twelve already. So was this really the construct? Do you think, or was this a robot designed by Evil Pewter to simulate the construct? Because I don't think we have a straight, I don't think we have a straight answer on that. I would say this has to be a robot construct just because Maxwell Lord knew the exact location, and Batman points that out earlier. He says he thinks this is all fishy, that there's a bunch of holes and inconsistencies in Max's story. Yeah, he knows exactly where this energy being is that's the source of all this. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty convenient. So I would have to say that this is a construct made by the computer and not the actual construct. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you there. I think, that is, I think that's probably the case. All right, so what you want to say about the art? All right, uh, as always, great throughout. Probably some of my favorite panels, though, are McGuire's Batman. Mm. There's uh, page 10 where uh, it's a six-panel uh, grid there. And the, the middle two panels where he drops through the hole in the floor and then he's engaged by the tentacles. And then page 13 where he's kind of standing there in half shadow. Those are probably yeah, some of my favorite panels in the book. He looks great there. That half half shadow panel on page 13, is it 13? Yeah, is yeah. really, really impressive. I mean, I just, wow, that one really stood out to me as well. It's in my notes too. Really, really nice. Also on the same page, I like, there's also some nice touches that I think McGuire put in that may or may not have been in the script. Like it, on that same page, Captain Adam's using a fire extinguisher to put something out. It's not in any of the text anywhere. It's not in any of the dialogue. It's completely unnecessary, but it's realistic. It is something somebody would be doing, doing with their hands and doing something rather than just standing around talking. Again, wonderful artistry by Kevin McGuire. Yeah, and there's a lot of detail on the fire. There's even noticeable letters, uh, like warning label and everything on the on the fire extinguisher. It's kind of impressive. I guess I wonder if McGuire adds that in or if that falls on the letterist to add that. Oh, that's a good question. Huh, I don't know. So I guess, yeah, I wonder if that's letter, penciler, or inker, I guess. Hmm. Is it Al Gordon? Is he the one inking this? Yeah, he would be Al Gordon. Yep, yep. So we got uh, three splash pages in this issue. We got the first page with Max smiling and, you know, excited about all these new heroes joining. We got the last page, which is the reveal of Metron. Metron? 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 I don't know. Which which which, which way do you say? Well, uh, my favorite character is Superman, and what, what city is he in charge of protecting? It's not Metropolis. <laughs> you don't get on the Metro train. It's Metron. <laughs> Come on. Okay, Metron. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, I get that. That works. All right. So uh, there's that splash page of Metron, and then there's also a big splash page of the Construct crashing through the cave ceiling towards the end of the book there, too. There's lots of little things, too, like Black Canary in, on page 12. When she's sort of rubbing it in Batman's face that she gave the order on how to resolve the situation, she's actually sitting there twisting her hair in her fingers, you know, like a schoolgirl. In, in, in sort of a casual bragging kind of way. And I just think that's perfect. I mean, that little kind of detail is so perfect and looks wonderful in the book. And it gives so much real life to these characters. Yeah, I agree. It's just all the poses, all the expressions, and then the, the little details like that. It's just, you don't see that anywhere else. 
Yeah. Like when, when on page two, and Max is like biting his knuckles, when right before he explodes, you know, right before he loses his mind, yelling at everyone, he like when he's thinking through how he's going to react, he's either he's either biting his knuckles or he's just got his knuckles right up against his mouth. And he's just like, Whoa, what do I do? What do I do? I got to think this through, and then he explodes. So really cool. Now there was something else I wanted to mention. It's interesting about Evil Pewter. They always gave Evil Pewter a nine-panel grid setup, but it was so cleverly done, it wasn't always nine panels. And I'll explain what I mean here. So, like, if you go to page page 17, so you get the nine-panel grid there, right? Now go to page 19. You get a nine-panel grid for the most part. The top three panels and the bottom three panels are all in the nine-panel grid. It's the middle section that's different, and that's because they're showing Metron rather than Evil Pewter. So they still kind of kept consistent to that same – the size, at least, of the panels – and then it reappears again, actually, I think earlier, the same sort of thing. I think you're projecting your thoughts on uh, issue 12. No, on page 4. If you look page on page four? 4, again, the evil pewter has the top three panels. Oh, and sure yeah. enough, it's in that sort of nine-panel grid size again. So it's yeah. a consistent style whenever evil pewter's thinking or talking. So I like that. It's really – it's consistent. Now, I, did Giffen do the break, layouts or breakdowns again? Uh, yep, he did do the layouts. I think he did, yeah. Yeah, and that would make sense because, you know, he masters the nine-panel grid uh, quite – around this time and eventually does it with Legion of Superheroes and stuff like that. But I thought that was really nice. It was a really clever artistic touch to carry that through. And then I've got uh, a couple of critical things to say. First off, the last splash page where Metron is, you know, he showed up. That's the big ta-da. It's Metron. Like, I don't know, the splash page, it just seems like it doesn't have quite the oomph it should. Like, I don't know, maybe Metron should have been bigger. I mean, the chair takes up most of the screen, but maybe he himself should have been a little more commanding presence. I don't know. Is, am I off base here? I don't know if it's more commanding, because he's always been one of the thinner, kind of less physically imposing uh, of the new gods. It's it's his brain, his pure logic that is kind of sets him apart. He's not the physical match. He's the kind of a mentally superior one. And so I, I don't know if it's so much as that, but the, there is just something off about him a little bit that it just doesn't it's the big reveal and it just seems to be lacking a little gravitas i don't know what it is yeah and it may tie into something you and i were talking about off air beforehand which is the question comes down to i love this comic there's a lot of wonderful moments in it it's very funny i mean it's really really funny it's very enjoyable but is it is it a complete story or is it even necessary when you look at issue 12 you know, one of the things you and I kind of got to was it almost seems to us that maybe this would have been better if issue 11 and 12 had been combined. Is that yes. fair to say? Yes. It reminds me a lot of like a third or fourth chapter in a current comic in, with the, you know, six issue story arc written from the trade mentality. Not a lot happens. I mean, there's a couple action beats, but resolved pretty easily. Guy kind of off panel shoots his power ring into an outlet and that fries these tentacles which we really haven't seen do too much on screen this uh, giant robot just pretty much falls through a cave and there's a lot of kind of plot development or exposition or mysterious stuff going on but all that happens off panel so we don't really learn anything we don't know anything and I had to crack open 12 and reread it just to get the kind of the complete story going. And then, uh, spoilers, I guess, uh, very light 10,000 foot view, uh, <laughs> um, thoughts on, on issue 12 is that's much more plot driven. This one was definitely humor based. I mentioned the Ghostbuster humor throughout. 
that's happens on almost every page. There's a lot of great character interaction that we've talked about, but plot wise, nothing really happens. Whereas next issue is almost all plot. A lot of it's exposition. You don't get the kind of JLI flavor with that issue. It's the two of them together give you the complete package, but each one of them is missing something on their own. And so like we talked at off air, this would have been a perfect story for like an annual that yeah. size up page count would have given everything you needed in, in one story. And would have definitely left you more satisfied. So, I mean, the art's great. There's some great character beats in this one, but it, it just doesn't quite leave you fulfilled on the, the plot end of it. And, and I was like you. I finished this issue, and I thought, can I wait a month to read issue 12? Nah, I feel like I need to read it right now. And I did the same thing. I sat down and read 12 immediately afterwards. So, yeah. it's Now, I don't want to sound too harsh here, because I, I think it's fair to say we both loved it, and we just talked about the character beats. And in fact, the character building in this is really, really good. And as time goes by... The action beats become less and less in this book anyway, and the book actually yeah. becomes more about the character interaction. So it's almost like this is maybe a bit of a transition phase as it begins to tra- – as uh, J.M.D. Mateo said, it, it, it was an action comic with some funny bits and eventually became a funny book with some action bits. And it's almost like it, this is the middle point of the transition where it's flipping from one to the other. Yeah, that, that's probably a good analysis of it. I, my, my favorite part of the book was definitely the, the interaction specifically with the Batman bit, uh, bits. Kind of talked about that on the, the front end when I was talking about Batman being one of my favorite characters in the book and a lot of that just became uh, because this issue was fresh in my mind i think he works pretty well here in a team environment like you mentioned uh, during the synopsis a little bit of uh, our discussion after that he even temporarily hands over the uh, reins of command a bit to uh, canary he's uh, jokes around a little bit he just seems like a, a much friendlier batman in the the vein of the the batman we saw in the alan davis and mike w bar issues of detective and so yeah. uh, that was definitely a, a fun little bit you know, you mentioned the uh, kind of transition from an action comic with humor to a humor comic with action. That's kind of just this era of DC in general is kind of a, a transition period. I think a lot of people view the post-crisis, I guess, aesthetic or shtick of the DC universe kind of being the legacy heroes. But really, that doesn't come until the 90s when Wade takes over Flash and starts bringing in like Max Mercury. And we've had the uh, JSA return in uh, Armageddon 2001. Was it Inferno? Or Alien Agenda, one of those well, two minis. Alien, Alien Agenda was first, and Inferno was like the second or third of those minis. And so that, that brings back the JSA, and then we, you know, we had the two limited series, and then from there, you know, we get uh, James Robinson's Golden Age and Starman series that kind of spins out of it, and that's really when you start to get the legacy aspect of the DC Universe, and then, you know, you bring in uh, Tim Drake as Robin, you have Connor Ken as Superboy, and kind of adds a more legacy to uh, those family and characters that are the, the Batman and Superman family. That's really where you start to get the legacy. But at this point, post-crisis, kind of late 80s, it seemed like uh, you really started to get into more character-driven stories, where pre-crisis, I would say, kind of a simplistic breakdown of the difference between the Marvel and DC universes or storytelling method was that Marvel was character-driven. You know, you saw the hero battle real-life problems that they had to overcome to face, you know, their street-level nemesis, where DC was much more plot-driven. Well, that's definitely an oversimplification. Of course, there are plenty of exceptions, like Teen Titans by Wolfman Perez or Firestorm by Conway. I feel like both of those were very much Bronze Age Marvel books told in the Bronze Age DC universe, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then in the late 80s, after uh, Crisis, seems like a lot of DC's books were definitely moved to more character-driven, and I think probably a lot of that had to do with bringing on traditionally Marvel uh, creators, like 
Byrne and Roger Stern, having them jump over to DC and start telling stories. Sure. You mean you get things like Starman by Stern, John Ostrander's uh, Manhunter, Stern's Power of the Atom, and then obviously Batman and Superman were still, I think, pretty plot driven, but they still kind of had their character development moments, especially uh, after Byrne left when you know he had uh, Superman kill the three pocket uh, universe uh, Kryptonian villains, and then you had the whole messed up his his, his mind. He's moonlighting his uh, gangbuster, and then right. my favorite. Superman, Superman story of all time. He has the whole exile story arc, where he's really kind of a story of uh, I, character identity and discovering himself. And uh, so that's all kind of in, in this era that there, where uh, you have much more of a kind of Marvel approach to uh, DC. And it's kind of corresponds to this just overall transition. Obviously, the, the JLI book is quite a, a change from what uh, Justice League had been before Crisis as well. Uh, typically, I would spend some time debating and telling the people at home why you're wrong, but uh, we're out of time. So uh, I'll just say, damn, you're right. You nailed that, actually, uh, with how DC was becoming very Marvel-like in the 80s. I'm glad you mentioned Mark Wade because it turns out Mark Wade was answering the letters in the letters page of this issue, interestingly enough. And yeah, I noticed that. Does that mean he would have been assistant editor? I, I looked, and he's he's not doesn't have an assistant editor credit in the book, but I was like, right, he's why is Mark Wade why is Mark Wade answering that unless he's assistant editor or something? Maybe Andy Helfer was busy? I'm not sure. But now I want to jump ahead because you talked a little bit about Superman. So why don't we talk about the house ads? Because there are some house ads worth mentioning in here, and one of them specifically ties into uh, John Byrne's Superman, which is the world of Smallville called The Rest of the Story. And it says, Before the Man of Steel, there was The World of Smallville by John Byrne, Kurt Schaffenberger, and Alfredo Alcala, the second of three interlocking four-issue miniseries coming in December. So, uh, you being my Superman guy, what do you think, man? It has been a while since I've revisited this, and uh, I cannot remember how nicely or incompletely, maybe. I I really don't remember because it has been years since I read it, but... Obviously, uh, a big part of that, and it's shown in the house ad, we have a manhunter looming back there in shadow. It's kind of <sighs> dealing with the whole uh, revelation that Lana Lang was a manhunter sleeper agent. I- I'm kind of curious about this one because uh, I'm-, I'm really curious about the art because I do not remember what my thoughts are of it. But Kurt Schaffenberger, kind of more of a traditional kind of cartoony. I mean, he he did Golden Age work for the Marvel family, mm-hmm. Fawcett, you know, mm-hmm. Captain Marvel. Did a lot of uh, Superboy and then the Silver Age. And I think he drew a lot of uh, New Adventures of Superboy in the early part of the 80s. And then I, I think of Alfredo Alcala, who was you know, one of the, the Philippine artists that came over, did a lot of kind of more uh, genre books for DC, some of the, the horror Western stuff. So I, I think of him as having kind of a, a darker, heavier-handed, uh, kind of like a, a Pablo Marcos right. ink style, a lot more fitting kind of for more horror books. So kind of curious to it seems like a, a class of sh- uh, styles so i'm kind of ser- curious to see what the finished art product looks like on that well the effort might have been first of all to give kurt schaffenberger some work because in the post-crisis universe there was no real place for him yes and which which kind of surprises me it wasn't used as kind of a torch passing moment so like when they did the uh, superman the earth stealers it's written by Byrne, penciled by kurt swan and then jerry ordway did the inking on it i think i think i remember that right so I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't have, you know, one of the newer DC artists, um, you know, kind of the hot guys like uh, Byrne, Ordway, or even Perez coming in uh, Ink Schaffenberger on this. Well, that's where I was going is maybe Alcala was on there to sort of give it a more streamlined, modern look to help yeah. Schaffenberg along. Could have been the purpose. But, uh, well, then uh, now before that came World of Krypton and then after it came World of uh, Metronopolis. So uh, we're checking out. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think they've ever collected the world of Smallville or the, the world of uh, Metropolis ones. 
World of Krypton one, they just put out a new trade paperback a couple of years ago, and they included all the like uh, 70s uh, World of uh, Krypton uh, backup stories that ran in uh, Superman. Hmm. That's interesting, because those would be so conflicting different origins of Krypton. Huh. Yep, I think it was just so they could fill out a trade paperback. Sure. sure. Otherwise, a, a four-issue miniseries would be pretty thin. All right, then we get an ad, which is near and dear to your and I's heart, which is, <coughs> the future is 30 years old, and it's just the beginning. Legion of Superheroes, join us for a triple celebration of three decades of excitement. And you get Who's Who in the Legion, number one, Legion number 45, a 64-page special, and Secret Origins number 25 about the Legion. Woo! Yeah, it's also got the uh, Secret Origin of the Golden Age Adam, isn't it? Yeah, it does. Absolutely does. Uh, it's great to see the Legion celebrated, and for more Who's Who in the Legion, check out our Who's Who podcast, where we've just finished up the first issue, uh, our first two issues, I'm sorry, and we're tackling the next two issues very, very soon. In fact, I need to hang up on Kyle so I can finish reading it. Up next is a subscription ad for Checkmate, and I just want to mention that because I always thought, man, I, I never read Checkmate. I still to this day, I haven't read Checkmate. I just can't get myself to do it. I always, I always get. I've read a couple issues here and there, and they never seem to hold my interest. But those costumes of the Checkmate Knights are just about the slickest damn thing uh, for like a soldier type costume. It just looks awesome with the the black bodysuit and the gold armor and the gold mask. They look great. Yeah, I believe those were all uh, designed by John Burns. He actually has a uh, creator credit in the uh, house ad there. It says created by Paul Kupperberg, John Byrne, and Steve Irwin. Crikey! Not that Steve Irwin. Uh, <laughs> and I have never checked out Checkmate, but uh, Aaron uh, Head Moss had actually done an interview with uh, Paul Kupperberg uh, about his uh, Checkmate series as part of his uh, Task, Force, Task Force X uh, podcast. And I believe in, the, in that interview, Kupperberg mentioned that the Byrne did all the design work. He didn't actually work on the series, but he did all the character design. Coverbird seems to be someone that had a uh, really pretty strong working relationship with John Byrne. You don't have to look too far to, to see cases of where Byrne has been uh, difficult to work with in the past, and it seems like uh, he's always uh, been pretty high on working with uh, Coverbird, and Coverbird's always been pretty high on working with him, and so That's good. he must have had a great uh, editorial style to uh, work well with John. All right, very cool. Well, I... I used to doodle that night, like uh, just draw it myself. Like any time, any time I had to come up with a bad guy for something, like I would often would base it around that costume. It looks so good. Uh, there's an ad for the weird, which is uh, who is what is the weird. Which, by the way, uh, our buddy Professor Alan Middleton is covering on his Quarterbin podcast right now. Yeah, I've been holding off uh, listening to those episodes because I've had that miniseries for probably like five years now, and I just keep not reading it. I want to read it before I listen to his coverage. Uh, well, it's it's a, a creative team. It's really interesting. Jim Starlin, so you know that's got some good cosmic stuff probably. Bernie Wrightson and Dan Green. So, wow. But I haven't heard the greatest things about it. And it's worth mentioning, really, because not only is the JLI featured on the cover uh, in this ad, and the JLI is featured throughout the book. It actually says in the bottom, a four-issue miniseries featuring the Justice League International. So by this point, DC has definitely gotten in the sales figures on the previous issues of Justice League International and realized they've got a hit on their hands. So they're trying to tie everything they can into the JLI at this point. And finally, uh, just because I wanted to mention it, there is a subscription ad in the very back. Just, you know, typical DC subscription ad at the time. You know, buy this, you get a couple extra, whatever. But I just wanted to point it out because I thought you and I might get a laugh at that the the linchpin character of <laughs> this ad is Polar Boy. That's what DC Comics is using to promote their series is an image of Polar Boy. That cracks me up. Yes, it does. I'm trying to figure out who you think the artist is on this house ad. Um. Oh, jeez. I don't know. I don't. I, well, is oh maybe Greg LaRock with a really heavy-handed inker, maybe. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out because there's elements of some of the characters' faces that almost look burn-like, but it's like someone trying to emulate burn versus actually burn. 
I don't know. I mean, it's not a. It, I don't think it's a cover from Legion of Superheroes. I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, we should ask our buddies, uh, little Russell Burbage. But yeah. bottom line, I just think it's funny that DC thinks that Polar Boy is going to sell some subscriptions. <laughs> All right, folks. We are going to move on now to a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. This is where our guest is going to be asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. And it's not really necessarily an origin recap, but it's more about where these characters were in the DC Universe just before uh, getting involved with the Justice League International, what kind of impact it had on their lives or careers, either during or afterwards. And this time, we are going to talk about Mr. Uh, Metron Metron. Yes, that's right. So we have Metron, who, along with most of the more familiar Fourth World characters, made his first appearance in the pages of New Gods Number 1 by Jack Kirby that had a February-March 1971 cover date. Now, he frequently appeared throughout those Fourth World books by Jack Kirby. Uh, the other titles included Jimmy Olsen, Forever People, which, listening to the Who's Who podcast, I'm pretty sure you just absolutely love the Forever People and, like, the 500 entries they have, didn't you? Oh, man, Space Hippies. There's nothing better than page after page after page of Space Hippies in Who's Who, especially when the text is almost identical to all the other Space Hippies uh, from Forever People that are in that book. So, yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah, so Jimmy Olsen, Forever People, and then Mr. Miracle was the fourth, uh, fourth world title. Uh, but then that, that series uh, kind of lost steam, conked out, and uh, wasn't really finished. Uh, Kirby would eventually go back to Marvel uh, in the uh, right around 75, late 75, early 76. And really when he came to DC, the whole point was he was going to be an idea, idea man. He was going to launch a bunch of series and uh, get them started and then kind of move into more of a editorial role and pass the reins off to someone else to finish and Really, the only thing that uh, people really kind of took uh, the reins on was uh, Commandy. I believe Jerry Conway actually started uh, co-plotting or scripting some of that and then eventually took over as writer. Uh, I think Dick Ayers even drew a, a few issues of Commandy. And then, uh. Commandy lasted a long Yeah, yeah, it did. It was like 50 some issues. And then, uh, OMAC would have some backup features in like, uh, issues like, uh, Warlord and stuff that I think, uh, like Jim Starlin might have worked on. Um, but. Yeah, other ones like, you know, uh, the de- Etrigan, the demon, just didn't, no matter how much he's beloved nowadays, he just didn't take back then. No, no. And uh, so he kind of lost steam and really didn't get finished until uh, the mid-80s with the uh, Hunger Dogs graphic novel, which latest episode of Firewater Podcast, uh, you and Rob had a, a brief tangent about the uh, DC graphic novel line. I believe that was one of the uh, graphic novels in the oh, limited series. Oh, I think it series. was. I think you're right. Very hard to find. I want to say like 1984, 1985 was the year on that Hunger Dogs graphic novel one. Yeah, it could have been 83. It was right before the Superpower stuff came out. Yeah, might have been. Or maybe so, maybe at the same time as Superpowers, but it was right in that realm. So eight, around yeah. 84 is where I'm going to peg that. So uh, good luck finding a, a first print of that uh, affordable. But uh, So after that, obviously that, that takes us to the mid-80s. That whole little uh, thing uh, called Crisis happened and uh, mixed everything up. And so uh, after that point, really the, the, the new gods and kind of the fourth world stuff at that point, you know, like you mentioned, the, there was the superpower stuff that kind of established uh, Darkseid and his family of uh, villains kind of uh, as a main DC threat. And really going forward after that point, they were kind of the big bads uh, of the DC universe. And so uh, Metron's first post-crisis appearance was in the uh, Mr. Miracle special number one uh, that went on sale in January of 1987. So we're talking 10, 11 months uh, before the issue uh, we covered today. And that was written by Mark Evanier and penciled by Steve Rude. Uh, this 40-page story is collected in the Tales of the New Gods trade paperback that I mentioned uh, during the in-stock trade selection at the top of the episode. So nice little synergy there. <laughs> 
And uh, after the Mr. Miracle special appearance, uh, Metron would go on to spend the rest of kind of 1987 to 1988 kind of bouncing around a couple of different DC titles and guest appearance roles, including uh, Swamp Thing number 62 by Rick Veach and Alfredo Alcala. So there was that uh, uh, anchor we just got done talking about, where uh, Metron observes two giants drifting in space near the source wall. Uh, he detects that a mother box is there, and he goes and investigates. The mother box belongs to one of the giants and is absolutely huge. Metron uses his Mobius chair to shrink the mother box to normal size. However, the energy used depletes the X element, which powers the chair, and Metron is left then stranded in space. The mother de- uh, mother box uh, detects a presence in the void and draws the Swamp Thing to Metron's location. Swamp Thing then uh, takes the form of the chair, and with the help of the mother box, takes Metron into the source. Metron wow. and Swamp Thing each have powerful visions as they become one with the universe. And uh, in the end, Swamp Thing is driven mad. Holy um, moly, I didn't know about any of that. Jeez. And so Metron eventually finds his way to Dark Side. He relates his story only to learn that he did not enter the source. It was an elf or a left. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> a, it was an Aleph. I don't know okay. what that means. I'm stealing this from Mike's Amazing World. <laughs> <laughs> Metron had hoped to uh, bargain for a supply of the X element, but is left with nothing to trade. However, Darkseid is curious about Swamp Thing. He learns that his love for Abby Cable was all that kept him sane. Darkseid gives Metron the X element he needs, and Motherbox removes Swamp Thing's memories of the experience, restoring his sanity. So after that uh, trippy adventure, uh, <laughs> Metron's <laughs> next stop was in the pages of the Warlord Annual Number 6. Check out the World of Worlds podcast. And that one was uh, by Michael Flesher and Pablo Marcos. And there, uh, Darkseid's forces attempt to invade Skrataris before the new gods of uh, New Genesis come to the aid of Warlord Travis Morgan, and they halt the attack and then drive the forces of Apocalypse out. Then Metron's next two stops are in the pages of Justice League International here in the, la- the last page, number 11, and then he plays a bigger role in number 12. So be sure to look for uh, more Metron action next when uh, Shag and his next victim uh, <laughs> arrives in uh, handcuffs and they cover the story next month. So after the uh, conclusion of Who is Maxwell Lord in JLI number 12, Metron shows up in the first issue, the four-issue prestige format miniseries Cosmic Odyssey by Jim Starlin and Mike Ooh. Nolan. Actually, just getting ready to uh, reread that. That's I'm going to spend my weekend. And then uh, following that appearance, Metron would go on to star in the New God series, which was written by Mark Evanier, which a few of those stories are included in the trade paperback I mentioned earlier. And uh, pencils uh, on that series were provided by the likes of Paris Collins, Rick Hobart, and Steve Irwin. That series ran 28 issues, and uh, kind of right before that uh, issue, that series, there was a six-issue uh, miniseries drawn by Paris Collins and written by J.M. Day Mateus about the uh, Forever People. The uh, second, second issue uh, of that series uh, actually was on stands uh, in November of uh, 87, so that series is going just getting off the, the grounds here as where we're at and uh, covering JLI. And so uh, New Gods, that ran 28 issues, that went to uh, 91. I, I actually read some of those New Gods not too long ago. I, I busted out... I think I got through like maybe the first five or six issues. I petered out, but the Mark Evanier Paris Collins series of New Gods, I enjoyed those actually. It's it's an era most people don't talk about because you know it wasn't Kirby, it wasn't Simonson. It's it's kind of the forgotten series, but uh, I enjoyed it. They did some interesting show with, with uh, Forger and things like that. I I, I dug it. Yeah. Well, Mark Evanier was a longtime assistant to Kirby. I mean, had right. a lot of great reverence for him, obviously, and so. Well, stories were pretty true to Kirby's original vision, I think. With that, it seems like uh, it's been a while since I've read that, so I want to go back and reread that. But it seems like oh, some of that series is kind of spent just kind of treading water. There's not a lot of new ground uh, broke with it. And really, you wouldn't get any new ground broke with it, I don't think, until uh, Byrne and Simonson were both working on it. So in 1995, then, we had another New God series launched, and... 
that that series when it launched was written by Tom Payer mm-hmm. and Luke Ross was the penciler and this thing just looked so stereotypical nineties. <laughs> which, you know, some of the, the Korean designs kinda lend themselves to that. I mean Kirby was a big influence on Rob Liefeld and so super big over muscled and then uh with issue twelve of that series John Byrne took over. Actually uh Paul Coverberg was the editor on that. So Byrne did the last story arc and then that kinda led into Jack Kirby's fourth world uh, title. So New Gods ended. It went into Jack Kirby's Fourth World, which was also written and drawn by Byrne with uh, Coverberg on the uh, editing there. And at that same time, then the Orion series got off the ground that was written and penciled by Walt Simonson. And the Genesis of it is mixed in there. Oh. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I try to love that one because John Byrne is one of my favorites. And the uh, penciler on that series is actually Ron Wagner. And he's from Iowa. You know, oh, okay. Comic book artist from Iowa. Ron Wagner's a, a pretty cool dude. I met him quite a bit. Actually, the uh, five hours ago when I was first talking about my <laughs> experience with the the JLI, the the shop I was writing articles for. Rob Ron uh, Wagner went to that shop. He was a big friend of the shop, so I met oh, cool. him a few times there before. But uh, he did a lot of uh, GI Joe stuff in the eighties too. Big GI Joe fan, so that was uh, neat to see. If there's anything I learned from the Millennium coverage with uh, Michelle Fufay, uh is that. I don't hold it as much against the creators when a comic sucks. Uh, so Genesis, I feel like I can go, ugh, and still love John Byrne and, uh, yep. and the artist. You know, I, I don't think that's a knock. It's just, they both put a lot of effort into it. It just didn't come together. Yeah. And so kind of spinning out of that New Gods title as well, because, uh, Byrne introduced a character called Tachyon in the, the first issue oh, geez, when yeah. he took over there. So then it was a Tachyon series and then, uh, Byrne was also writing and drawing Wonder Woman at the time, which again, I think Paul Coverberg was his editor there too, so they did have a, a great working relationship. And, uh, Byrne did quite a bit with the, the New Gods when he was on his Wonder Woman run, which I know Frank hates, but I like that run. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit too. It's like, you know, one of the times I've read Wonder Woman on a regular basis. You know, is it yeah. authentic to Wonder Woman? I don't know, but I enjoyed reading yeah. it. Yeah, so. So mid nineties there, there's a lot of kind of new god stuff going in there and Metrons plays a pretty big role in that and it's kind of in the thick of things as well. So I'm trying to track down the, the few issues I'm, I'm missing yet of the, uh, that, uh, 89 to 91 new god series. And then I think I'm going to try to track down all the Mr. Miracle issues that popped up from around that time too and just kind of do a big reread here in the upcoming months of kind of the post crisis uh, up to the early 2000s, uh, fourth world stuff. So. Looking forward to that trade paperback I mentioned earlier coming in and kind of aiding me in that uh, reading quest. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, the Mr. Miracle series that ran parallel to JLI, which will start in a few months' time of, of where we are now, is a lot of fun. That's a great one. I don't know if, uh, if Metron Metron shows up in there or not. But uh, and, and also worth mentioning, since we're, you know, go a little more forward to like the New 52. When the Justice League had that big dark side war, you know, a year or two ago, um, yeah. Metron's chair actually became a huge deal. Um, Mobius chair. Yeah, the Mobius chair becomes a big deal because Batman ends up in the Mobius chair and becomes very much the Bat God. And it's, uh, it's an interesting storyline in the dark side. Oh, yeah, that's right. He sits in there and they're in one of the big payoff, the, Revelation of Joker's identity, and there's multiple Jokers or something yeah, but stupid like that. I don't, I don't know how it resolved, but that was part of that storyline. Yeah, yep. So, well, that was uh, quite a lot of information. Where I said, please keep it three to five minutes. Well done. That was only like 35, 40 minutes. So, good job, Kyle. Yeah. Well, your last, not the the interview, but with uh, Michelle Fife, that episode was like two hours and thirty six minutes. So, <laughs> you trying to beat it? <laughs> I don't know. Every time I come on, I try to have long episodes. That uh, who's who in the Legion? That thing was like five hours long. The first episode. So it was over four take hours. that who's who in the Star Trek. 
<laughs> All right, well, we're going to move on now to quite possibly the most important item of the show, folks. This is the all-important, the coveted... Quahaha Award. And this is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in this issue. Now, both myself and Kyle are going to pick a moment. One of them is going to be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. So, Mr. Kyle, I'm going to allow you the honor of going first. What is your Bwahaha moment? This one was pretty tough um, because I don't think there was really one big funny joke. It was just consistent jokes throughout. Like I said, there's a Ghostbuster humor element on almost every page. But I think I'm going to have to go with the Booster barfing and Ted making the Moby Dick joke on uh, it's either page six or seven. Ah, okay, that is a very good one. That was very, very close to being my Bwahaha moment because it's just it's it's hilarious the way it happens and like you said, or Dar she blows. There you go, there she blows. Yeah, I mean it's funny stuff. All right, I like that. I like it now. Mine, and, and it all comes down to interpretation, was Black Canary talking to Dimitri when he asks her her name. And, uh, you know, he says, my name's Dimitri, what's yours? And she says, let's keep it Black Canary, shall we? I'm sure your wife will be happier that way. And I read that, again, as her basically saying, I know I'm attractive, and I think your wife's going to be upset that we're working together. And I just found that very, very funny. Uh, when we sit down and compare the two moments, though, I gotta say, yours is more bust a gut, no pun intended, gut funny, and so I think that we should give the award to Booster Cold ralphing all over the inside of the new Justice League International airship. What do you think? Yeah, why not? Vomit humor seems to work. That seems to be uh, the go-to joke for Family Guy, and they keep throwing millions of dollars at Seth MacFarlane, so why not? All right, fair enough. So, Congratulations to, uh, well, I guess to Booster's Vomit, really specifically. Uh, you have won the Bwahaha Award, and it is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So, congratulations. Wear it with pride, sir. All right, um, Kyle, geez, this is, um, this is actually a bit awkward, but I've just been handed a note from the front desk. It appears your recording studio, which is your car, uh, and I've sat in it multiple times, but apparently it's being towed away right now. Uh, security is... What? No. All my recording equipment's in there. All my notes. Sorry. The security is really particular about parking around the embassy, so you might want to go chase after him and recover your recording studio. <sighs> this isn't going to be good. All right, folks. While he is trying to get that squared away, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Law. Folks, we have got a ton of feedback to cover this time because we're covering not only feedback from episode 10 with Michelle Fife, we're also covering the interview for the 30th anniversary we did with JMD Mateus. Now, remember, if you want to be part of the conversation, if you want to get mentioned in the feedback section or just want to share your thoughts, please hit us up on the social media. You can use our hashtag, which is poundfwpodcasts, or uh, even better, tag us on Twitter. We're at JLI Podcast or on Facebook. We're Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Now, as I said earlier, it's really, this is all about building 
building a community of online JLI fans around this show. Remember, if you're outside the United States, let me know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy. It's good to know that too, because if you're international, we'll have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, let's cover a couple of iTunes reviews, folks. Now, as a thank you for everyone who leaves an iTunes review, we will read your entire review on the air. First one is on my buddy Mark Lax. He says, man, this is the stuff. The Irredeemable Shag and his rotating guest hosts have done the impossible. They've made the Giffen DiMatteis Justice League even more enjoyable than they were originally, which is no mean feat considering their Justice League was the best book, except for the Superman books, to come out of the post-crisis DC. The love Shag and his guests have for these stories comes through loud and clear. Between the witty banter and the perverse innuendos, you can't stop listening. Really, Shag and his guests are the best at what they do, and these JLI stories were the best of their kind. Listen and enjoy. Well, thank you, Mark. Really appreciate that. Then we got a review from Ombre Arana, which I believe would translate as Spider-Man, uh, from Colombia. He says, want to make something of it? Doesn't translate well in Spanish. If you love comics, you think you know the JLA, this is the podcast for you. It's funny, very informative, and the host and his rotating guests make this very specific theme podcast a fun ride. This era of Justice League is very particular, especially if you know the Morrison JLA, but to me, it's the most entertaining, and since it didn't have any franchise full characters, the stakes were more real. If you haven't read any of these comics, do it now and listen to the podcast to get more out of it. Well, thank you, Ombre Aran. Really appreciate that. And that's going to end out our iTunes reviews right now, folks. If you haven't left us an iTunes review, we would sincerely appreciate it. Please, just takes a second to go out there and leave the review. Say whatever you'd like. You know, give us five stars. Give us less stars. I mean, well, you don't have to give us less stars. Five stars would be nice. I'm just saying. Anyway, uh, it would really be appreciated. It helps raise the profile of the show. It helps us find more fans of JLI to share and grow this community together. All right, the rest of the comments are going to be coming from our website and email and social media and stuff. And since there was so much content here, I'm having to just pull bits and pieces. In fact, I kind of assemble all the feedback in a Google document. It's 20 pages. So again, I'm just pulling bits and pieces so we can get through this. So first up are our comments specific to episode 10, which we did with Michelle Fife. First, we heard from Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Power Fish Dance Podcast. Give me those Star Wars. It's Midnight the Podcasting Hour and Nightcast and the man least likely to be listening to this episode, even though he's a past guest on the show. Uh, we talked about how Black Canary and her new costume, uh, or I should say the, the Jazzercise costume, when it first appeared, and he says Stephen DeStofano designed Black Canary's Jazzercise Mockingbird costume, and he says it first appeared in Who's Who Volume 2, drawn by Terry Austin, and then he said it first appeared in Story in the backup of Detective Comics number 554, drawn by Jerome K. Moore, but it also debuted on the cover of that issue drawn by Klaus Jansen. Now, Zoom Yukonori comes back and goes not to be pedantic, but Black Canary's Jazzercise's costume first appeared in Crisis number 5, page 10, panel 11. So technically, this is her first in-story appearance of the Jazzercise costume. So, thank you to Zoom Yukonori for showing up, Ryan. We really appreciate that. <laughs> then Ryan continued to say, Michelle gives a very impassioned and thoughtful defense of Millennium. Here's my rebuttal. Reading Millennium makes me sleepy. All right, Ryan. Thanks so much. Then we heard from my buddy Michael Bailey, who does From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. He does reviews for the Superman homepage, and now the views from the Longbox podcast Network, and he's a past guest on this show. Uh, we talked about the the money shot of the issue where Superman is in the team are bursting open the door to go fight the Manhunters, and he says that is the cover to Superman Monthly number 36. Superman Monthly was a United Kingdom reprint series, and some guy named Art Gray ran the letters page. <laughs> Very cool. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Then we heard from Zoom Yukonori again. Now, he does work for CBR, the line it is drawn, and soon he will be joining the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Looking forward to that. He says, Shag, you were correct about the four Jerry Bingham Millennium crossover covers forming a single picture. You know, Zoom, you could have just stopped that whole sentence with Shag, you were correct. I'm just saying, that really applies in a lot of situations. Anyway, he uh, he gave us some links from a, a couple of different places on the web where, where he found that image. He went on to say, I also do admire the 
dynamism of Joe Staten's art in the Millennium series, lots of good character expressions and body language, as well as very dramatic shifts in camera angles. Then we heard from our buddy Greg Rougeau, who says, While I'm unable to defend the core miniseries, a significant number of the tie-in issues were a lot of fun to read. He's speaking of Millennium, obviously. He says, This issue of JLI, the Detective Suicide Squad, Spectre Captain Adam crossover, and the various Superman titles, just to name a few, were all excellent. Millennium may have had lofty goals. Unfortunately, the parts were greater than the whole. Hmm. Not a lot of people coming on your side of this argument, Michelle. Hmm. Then we heard from my buddy Jose Rivera. He goes, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Millennium, but this issue either holds a special place in my heart or gives me a headache, depending on how I feel about Nort at any given time. He's always been a character I enjoy in small doses. Hal's reaction is priceless. The threat of the Manhunter's looming, it's it's Nort showing up that ruins Hal's day. <laughs> then I heard from my buddy David Ace Gutierrez, the executive producer of the Pod Dylan podcast. He goes, fellas, great show. Weren't the Justice League Hawks, meaning Hawkman and Hawkwoman, uh, retconned to be the Golden Age, Carter and Sierra Hall? Or was the JLA Hawkman always a spy until Katar joined the Wonder Woman League? Oh, David, why did you have to open that can of worms? Then we got a very lengthy response from Jimmy McGlinchey, which was really quite exceptional that he put all this together, and I sincerely appreciate it, Jimmy. Uh, any sense of dread in my voice is not coming from what you put together, but just having to relive this retcon. It's it's a bit like going through the wars again. Essentially, it comes from Hawk World number uh, issues number 21 through 25. I don't really want to go into all the details of it, but the gist of it is Carter and Shiera Hall from the JSA do, in fact, in, in the post-crisis universe, do become Hawkman and Hawkwoman in the JLA, and then once Crisis comes along and the JSA all go to Ragnarok, they go away, and so then a, a guy comes from Thanagar, and he's basically a spy, posing on Earth as Carter's son, and he marries an Earth woman, and they're, that, they're the Hawkman and Hawkwoman after Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they hang around for a while, and he ultimately ends up murdering her, and he gets taken out, and again, this is all retcon, keep in mind, and they decide to sweep it all over the rug and just tell people they retired shortly after Invasion, which also explains how they were able to appear in Just League International number 24, just briefly. Oof, it's just exhausting to think about it. But thank you, Jimmy, for giving us all that information, and damn you, David Escudieres, for even asking. Heard from my buddy Joe X. He goes, Michelle's impassioned defense of the crossover may not have changed anyone's mind, but you can't listen to it without examining your own prejudices. Hmm. He also says, uh, nice to see Drick again. He's talking about the Green Lantern, and I don't think that sentence has ever been typed before, Joe. So congratulations. He also says, Giffen absolutely swiped Munez. It's a one thing to take a panel or two, but he was taking entire pages. I was really mad at Keith Giffen at the time it came out, as I thought he was good enough artist on his own. And let's see what else he says. Oh, <laughs> I had challenged somebody to come up with a the real world. I was talking about how the Green Lantern Corps had the, the beach house, and I said someone should come up with a like the MTV TV show, the real world intro, and he wrote, this is a true story of seven lanterns picked to live in an illegally built beach house and have their lives drawn to find out what happens when people and aliens stop being polite and start getting green. The Green Lantern Corps. Well done, Joe. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Love it. Now, heard from my buddy Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, also with the Legion of Super Bloggers. He goes, uh, he also likes Chris Wozniak, because Michelle Fife had expressed his interest in Chris Wozniak, and says, I'll point you to the Hawk and Dove number 5, the Kessel series, not the miniseries, to get a sense of his bold style. And as I have said every time, that this Black Canary costume is my absolute favorite for her character. I love it. I suppose this issue might be one shiny gem in the otherwise turd field that was Millennium, but I cannot give the event any more love than that. Uh, then we hear from our buddy Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Popcast. He, uh, after listening to Michelle's uh, defense of 
of Millennium and talking about Joe Staden, he actually went back and found an older interview he had done with Joe Staden uh, at Heroes Con from 2015 and re-released uh, it to his podcast feed for Geek Brain Podcast. So go out there, check out Geek Brain Podcast, and you'll find recently a great interview with Joe Staden. It's really interesting to listen to, and they do talk about Millennium. Then heard from my buddy Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl blog and also our Scottish Embassy. He writes, It's terrific to have Michelle on. He can certainly hold up his end. And then he says, The Steve Englehart JLA issues were amazing. I'm not so sure Michelle is correct that it was a forgotten run. In my corner of fandom, it was legendary for such things as the Wonder Woman subplot and the cross-company continuation of the Cosmic Madonna storyline. And yeah, Dick Dillon was brill, which is uh, British talk for brilliant. Then he says, I like 80s state and art better than 70s. Much as I love Showcase number 100, for instance, his work there was far too loose for my liking. I really like Staten Inked by Ian Gibson. I'm also no Millennium hater. I didn't like such rubbish as the destruction of Laurel Kent or Lana Lang or Rudy West as sleeper agents, but the central conceit and the operatic sweeps sucked me in. The new Guardians were, of course, pants. Again, another Britishism. Look it up. There's an internet for that. Michelle responded to a lot of the comments. Uh, of course, Michelle Fife, writer and artist on Copra and past guest of the show. Uh, he responded to a lot of the comments on our website. And then he goes, thanks for having me on. I'm dead serious about a Dark Knight Strikes Again uh, defense, but I doubt I'll find takers for it. For now, I'm content with this latest bout. Uh, yes, Michelle, I don't know that anyone really wants to hear the Dark Knight Strikes Again defense. Um, <sighs> some things are just better left in the dark, buddy. Then I heard from my buddy Rob Kelly, my podcasting life mate, also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, does the Film and Water podcast, the Pod Dylan podcast, the Treasury Comics podcast, Digest cast, Power Records podcast, Aquaman Firestorm podcast, and the Who's Who podcast, and is one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Bet you didn't expect me to say that, did you? Uh, Rob says, this is probably my favorite issue of the series, at least in the Maguire run. I love seeing the new team's take on the classic characters. He says, uh, Michel Fife was a great guest. He really brought energy and enthusiasm to the discussion. I'll definitely be considering him for my two, for my new, <laughs> wait a minute, what? So I definitely will be considering him for the new co-host job on Fire and water that I'm currently auditioning people for. What? I just said all these nice things about you, Rob. I can't believe that. And he says, may I offer a controversial opinion myself, or going fife, as it will now be called. I'd like to Norton his first appearance. It was a funny gag to learn that the Green Lantern Corps is just as flawed organization when it comes to giving unqualified people too much responsibility, as say the U.S. government. That said, I thought every other Norton appearance after this was not funny, and only got less so as it went on, to the point where I avoided comics if he was in them. In my opinion, it was definitely a one-joke idea that should have remained so. Wow, Rob, no love for Nort. I don't know, people. What do you think at home? Should we tar and feather Rob for this statement or uh, maybe force him to wear a ringy dingy? I don't know. We're going to be thinking about this. Then we heard my buddy Chris Franklin, who's also from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, does the Supermates Podcast, the Power Records Podcast, the Batman Nightcast Podcast, and the new Where Does He Get These Wonderful Toys Podcast. And he's, of course, he's a past guest on this show. He says, great episode. Michelle's passion for a millennium is very admirable. I salute him for defending it so well, but I really can't say he changed my opinion of it. Like Shag, I was there too, and my evaluation has always been the miniseries is not not worthy of a giant crossover status. But I've been there. I like many things others scoff at and outright ridicule. Love what you love and to hell with everyone else. Fly that flag, man. He goes on to say, it's a shame the JLI team lost the Hawks to Hawkworld, just like they lost Canary to Green Arrow. Their take on the characters are my all-time favorite and really gave them a unique identity as a couple. A grumpy old fart who misses the old days and a fun-loving woman who adores him. Perfect. For more of that, listen to the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Way to work the plug, Chris. Well done. Then we heard from 
Gus Castles, or Casals, I'm not sure how to say that, Gus, I apologize. He has he runs a blog called The RG Home, uh, the El Blog de Gus Casals. He, he's from our Argentina embassy. He says, guys, outstanding episode. Shag, I'm afraid that I have to agree with pretty much every single point made by Michelle during the podcast, even if I'm not a big Millennium supporter myself. Wow, look at that, Michelle. You got one guy in your corner. He goes on to say, I also have to side with Michelle about the Giffen debate. I know about the Muniz controversy. I'm from Argentina. And yes, if he indeed was channeling, he did take it too far. I still love what he did with it. Also, the Maguire influence is very visible, both in Invasion and the late Levitt's Legion he did before Five Year Later. But I direct you exactly to those Five Year Later issues to show you how much of his own personal style, plus Munez, plus Maguire, and did a synthesis, something that was more than the mere sum of his parts. Huh. Very interesting observation, Gus. Thanks for your message. Then we heard from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast in our Australian embassy. Just love this episode and Michelle's enthusiasm. Resolving 2017 is the year I dive into Capra. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey. He says, Irish embassy calling. Apologies for the delay, but we had to clean up a dog mess that was all over the embassy gardens. Security footage shows Nort and a man holding a copy of Copra in his hand in the gardens. So when I get a hold of them... <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy, for continuing to humor my ridiculous jokes. Uh, he wrote in to say, Michelle's defense of Millennium is admirable. I think a lot of comic fans could be a lot more charitable to creators. As it was mentioned in this episode, no one sets out to make a bad comic, and it's just because a particular issue does not meet one's fancy does not mean that the creators involved did not do their best. Having said that, I did not like Millennium series itself, although the actual crossover issues were quite good, especially the JLI and the Batman Spectre Captain Adam Suicide Squad mini crossover within a crossover. He goes on to say, Nort! Great first introduction. And it was brilliant to see how he interacted with the other heroes. Look forward to more in-depth analysis when he becomes more entangled into the JLI in later issues. Heard from Mark Lax again. He goes, superheroes fighting robots? Excuse me, manhunters? Never gets old. But I gotta say, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, or as a girl, were a highlight for me. I've never seen them before being funny. Though truth to tell, I've read very few Hawkman comics. They were still a standout awesome. Then we heard from Bradley Null. He goes, <laughs> he wrote in a very interesting way. He wrote, I just, I mean, I, I want to like the issue. I like Nort, his first appearance and all that, but I just can't. I own it, bought it fresh, blah, 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 but it feels like an interpretation that was forced onto the book. Even if you tell me it's not really that, that's how I always feel every time I reread the series. I want to like the issue, but still can't. Oh, so, um, I guess what you're saying, Bradley, is you don't like Nort? Or you don't like Nort in this issue? Breaking my heart, buddy. Breaking my heart. Then we heard from Suntaran from our Denmark embassy. He goes, it wasn't just an 80s thing. The Basque sport of Hylai was looked at in the 40s as a way to help make super soldiers. I wouldn't be surprised if the idea of overthrow was taken from that considering his tech was from Court Industries. I don't know, Suntaran. I still think someone was getting drunk at one of those Hylai betting places. All right. Up next is Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, the Marvel Superheroes Podcast, DC Bloodlines Podcast, Diana Prince, the new Wonder Woman Podcast, and many more. He's I appreciated FIFA's Defense of Millennium, which was also my first attempt to collect a DC event miniseries. I bought the core book and a bunch of the spinoffs for the first month, then lost interest and followed the rest of the story through the tie-ins. Then he chimes in on the Engelhart Staten run of Green Lantern because that was a high watermark for that franchise, but the sales bump is overstated. The book never cracked 100,000 in the 1980s and only jumped from 81,000 to 96,000 in the lead-up to issue 200. Still, they played with a lot of interesting concepts and it was easily one of the best books DC was releasing at the time. And they <laughs> sort of uh, takes a crack at himself because anyway I became a DC fan through Bloodlines and Zero Month so who am I to judge? 
Then we heard from my buddy Tim Price. He says, I'm afraid to say that, yes, I have an opinion on Millennium 2. I think it could have been better, but Engelhart and Staten had three huge obstacles. The weekly schedule, never been done before, two huge storylines, The Chosen and The Manhunters, and I suspect too much editorial input. Michelle hit the first two really well, and I can't confirm the third, but I have a strong suspicion that the Eng- that Engelhart had a mandate to include as many DC characters as possible. Like there was some intern with a checklist saying, The Secret Six hasn't appeared yet, and oh, Brother Power the Geek needs to be sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I have a clear memory of Etrigan the Demon in one panel soliloquy in issue 8, and it was an awkward and unneeded. It felt shoved in. Then he goes on to say, Doesn't it seem like Nort's introduction is the point of the issue? I mean, from a storytelling standpoint, sure, killing robots is great fun, you know, but doesn't really say much about the human condition except that we like to murder things without consequences. But a new character? And a disruptive one at that? Wahahaha! <laughs> okay, maybe someone can help me with this nitpick. On the main story's last page, Aresia and John see the other heroes coming, and John says, Harbinger and Drick! But John has never met Drick. I'm talking about Drick the Green Lantern. The only hero in this book that has met Drick was Catman. Tim goes on a little further to talk about the specifics of it, but the gist is, how did Martian Manhunter know that Drick, who Drick was? And he put forward some theories about telepathy and different things like that, but it makes a good question. If Jean had never met Drick, how did he know who he was? Then we heard from our buddy Siskoid from the Firewater Podcast Network, the First Strike Invasion Podcast, the Oh Hot Moo or Not Podcast, the Gimme That Star Trek Podcast, and the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast. Woof! And he's from our Canadian Embassy. He says, just want to give Michelle Fifay a salute, though. We've been carrying out a bromance for a few years now on Siskoid's blog of Geekery. I've covered one of his stories on Lonely Hearts, and I love, love, love his art. I liked his defense of Millennium. Intent and ambition are worthy of praise, even if we think the execution didn't achieve its ends. But while I think the miniseries itself too often became an intersection where the heroes meant to recap whatever happened in their own books, I've usually been pretty positive about the tie-in issues, where the heroes had to tackle the problem of a traitor in their midst. Not always happy with who it turned out to be a Manhunter, but at least it elicited an emotional rise. Except in the case of Overthrow. I mean, who thinks you can infiltrate a hero's life by becoming a zealist villain? <laughs> then we heard from Travis Ellisor. On Twitter, he said, here's those great covers you were talking about put together, and he posted the image from Millennium of the Captain Adam cover, the Suicide Squad cover, the Detective Comics, and the Spectre cover, and it looks fantastic. Thank you. Then uh, we got followed up by uh, SETI, or R5D4Rocks, says, listening now, and I have every issue in this crossover, but the crossover within a crossover is a highlight. Talking about those four issues we just mentioned. Then uh, I got a comment from We Met Lever chain kit or Ostrikos says I oh, Twitter has the craziest name he says I always like Chris Wozniak too then we heard from Dallas Gibson who said reading through the Bwahaha Justice League again with the show and so ready to get past the Millennium tie-ins and they put a sleeping emoji on there ouch Dallas then we heard from Ruben Wilmot who says I don't know if you ever saw it but a few years after Millennium the tables were turned with Joe Staten ended up inking Ian Gibson on Meta 4 huh that's really interesting and Sean McLaughlin says hmm gonna have to check out Capra. Then we heard from Dead Robin from the Pole to Pixel podcast. He goes, Justice League International number 10 is the single best Millennium crossover. Super Robo Massacre is totally ignored. <laughs> Schneider inspiration, maybe? I think he's talking a little bit about uh, uh, Batman versus Superman there. Then we heard from Longbox Crusade. He goes, I like Millennium. However, I'm a sucker for crossover stories. Heard from Jeffrey Brown. He goes, currently listening to the JLI podcast with Michelle Fifay, and I've really got into Shag and Fifay's discussion about Keith Giffen. Very nice. Then our buddy Greg Arujo. We talked about several of the house ads. Well, he posted those house ads on Twitter for us. Thank you. I heard from my buddy Michael O'Brien. He goes, your breakdown of Millennium 
was great. As Shag knows from my multiple earlier tweets, I love Millennium. The every comic character has a spy to the Manhunter battles. Uh, though I agree New Guardians was weak, I would love for some current creator to do even a short story on them today, or a new take. It had friggin' Harbinger, and the idea that a racist could be a chosen one was bold as well. Then heard from Brad Dade from our Canadian embassy, he goes, I want to hear a defense of the Dark Knight Strikes again. In a collected edition, it was not as bad as when it first came out. Oh, Brad, you don't want to invite that kind of pain. Please, don't do that to us. Then heard from Mr. Dave Cabal. He uh, he had, he posted a couple images. He had his original Justice League International trade paperbacks handy to read along with the episode. And these are the original ones. I'm talking about the same ones I have from the from the 90s. And he also says, catching up on previous episodes, love the theme song. I can imagine Black Canary doing an 80s aerobics dance to it. <laughs> then we heard from the Warlord Worlds podcast, which is dedicated to Mike Grell, hosted by Darren and Ruth Sutherland. They said, spending the afternoon with the Justice League International podcast as Shag welcomes guest Michelle Fife. Great episode, but we are ignoring the Mike Grell comments. Ooh, that's right. There was some Mike Grell comments in that episode that weren't all flattering. Then we heard from Matthew Thomas Cody, who says, blah, ha, ha, honorable mention should go to Captain Adam calling John Jones mother and then mom. He posted a couple panels from that. Now, moving on to some of the comments from our 30th anniversary interview with JMD Mateus. You know, we got a lot of comments about how much people enjoy that interview and how great D. Mateus was. I mean, everyone's got kind of their own idea what a creator might be like when they read their comics, but to hear how nice and open he was and friendly and it just, I think a lot of folks really learned to appreciate him even more. All right, running through these comments. Dishwater Danny says, it's episodes like this that make me realize the greatest podcasts come from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Aw, thank you, Danny. Joe X says, one thing I would have liked you to ask was about the Order versus Chaos War that seemed to be building in DC in the time, with Demetrius, Kupperberg, and Ostrander all touching on it in their titles. You know, we kind of touched on it a little bit. We talked about Dr. Fate, but yeah, we could have dived deeper into that, I suppose. I, I, I could have done that. Of the new information in the interview, the most interesting was the behind-the-scenes look at Justice League 3000 and 3001. I love that series. Lord knows I blogged about it enough times and pushed it on social media every opportunity. But Lord, if Andy Helfer had been editing, it might still be running. That's a good point, Martin. You're quite possibly right. Heard from Chris Franklin again. He goes, I've always enjoyed Mr. Dimitrius' work, but now that I've heard how humble and intelligent he is, I'm endeared to him that much more. I'd love to hear him back on the show and discuss further handling of Justice League in animation. Ooh, I would love to hear that, too. Huh. Maybe we'll try and make that happen at some point. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, my podcasting life mate again. Superb episode, Shag. J.M. Dimitrius is one of the greats, and he managed to put up with your nonsense quite well, and with quite a lot of a plume. I could learn from him. <laughs> and then Rob says, I still remember going to Heroes World on Saturday. It was a special trip to pick up the first issue of Justice League. After the way the original JLA series sputtered to a conclusion, I was so excited over this new series. Pretty amazing first issue, especially considering J.M. Dimitrius was only five years old when he wrote it. Nice way to mark the anniversary. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. Then we heard from Chris Carnes, who said, Excellent show, Shag. You asked some great questions. I was very fortunate to meet Mr. DiMatteis at Shinder's Bookstore in downtown Minneapolis in the mid-80s, and he signed my copy of Defenders 100. He was very polite to answer all the questions I had, and I was a young kid at the time, and we had a nice conversation. As it turns out, we share a December 15th as our birthdays. His kindness and forthcomingness hasn't changed at all. I really enjoyed hearing him and the rapport you both had. Great stuff. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much. Mark Flax wrote in to say, Great show. DiMatteis has always been one of my favorite comic writers, whether it's Spider-Man, JLI, Moonshadow, etc. Dimitrius has always delivered his best. Great to hear when the creators collaborating and getting along and seem to be good friends. A terrific and fun interview by the always brilliant Bwahaha Shag. Hmm. He said always brilliant Shag, but he also said Bwahaha. Hmm. Not sure if that's a backhanded comment, Mark. Then our buddy Siskoid said, terrific interview. Nice job. I'm glad you didn't just stick to Justice League content. Well, um, thank you, Siskoid. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, I did not want it just to be a Justice League interview. I wanted it to be a uh, 
more encompassing a lot of what J.M.D. Mateus has done because he's got such a broad career, you know? Heard from Jimmy McGlinchey. Again, he says, Great interview with JM. He has written some great stories, and it was great to hear his insight into the stories behind the JLI. Hopefully, you might be able to get some more interviews from other creators of the Bwahaha era in the future. You know what, Jimmy? I hope to. We're going to have to see what happens, but I would like to make that happen as well. Then we heard from a new commenter, Ward Hill Terry. He says, Great interview, Shag. I don't think I could recognize a Demetrius story without looking at the credits, but listening to him make me want to seek out more of them. And then he talks about it. He goes, I'm one of the old guys, even older than Rob, which that just, that about, I fell out of my chair when I read that. Even older than Rob. I love that because Rob's just ancient, you know? Anyway, he goes on to say, this is the point where you and the other kids started reading. It marked the end of my regular collecting. He says he bought Justice League up to issue number eight. And he has a half a dozen or so in the mid-teens and early 20s, but he believes he picked them up after the fact from a discount box. Regardless, he says he's really enjoying our take on the stories. Oh, well, thank you, uh, Ward Hill Terry. We really appreciate you listening in. Heard from Diablo Frank about the interview. He says, I just wanted to say I enjoyed the interview and I may have to steal your product plugs from whenever I finally run my own interview with Demon Teas from two years ago when he was still promoting Justice League 3000. I ran all the Martian Manhunter and Captain America related material on the anniversary podcast, but the world is still waiting for our dialogue on Doctor Strange and the New Defenders. Michelle Fife says, I can't get over just how quite spontaneous and in the moment the creative process was back then. So many great comics were created under minimal supervision, and the JLI crew is a great example of what what can be done with the right players at the right time. The proof is in the pudding. It's why JLI stands the test of time. Tim Price wrote in to say, Hearing J.M. Demetrius was such a treat. I have so many of his comics, I can always count on his stories to be intelligent, literary, and emotional. Quite recently, I read his run in Captain America for the first time. What a ride! Jose Rivera says, I got to meet J.M.D. Mateus a few years ago at the New York Comic Con, and he was an absolute pleasure to talk to. I talked to him about his episode of the then-recent Thundercats reboot, and we got to talk about writing. I gave him a copy of my book because most of my humor came from him reading his work over the years, and he was nice enough to sign my copy of Justice League America Annual Number 5. Why is that a big deal? Well, that's the issue that not only got me fully invested in JLI, but it's also the issue that got me back into comics after a brief absence. I had it signed years earlier by Giffen and McGuire, but I finally completed the Trinity by having him sign it. Oh, that's awesome, Jose. So cool. Then I uh, heard from Christo Lucid, who said, Thanks for giving us J.M. Mateus. He is the buns of the JLI burger. Sweet, sweet buns. Heard <laughs> from Angus McRockford. Yeah, these are all Twitter names, folks. Because, wow, I can't believe this. The JLA was only 27 when Giffen, Mateus, and McGuire took over. You know, that's a good point. The JLA had only been around 27 years. That's like nothing compared to nowadays. Whew. And uh, then Matthew Thomas Cody says, This was a great interview and an awesome way to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Justice League number one. Thank you, Matthew. I totally agree. Then I got lots of general comments about the podcast as a whole. I'm just going to run through these. Uh, Alan Leach Jr. said, Latest comic score on sale for $10.99. I have the original first two trades. Now I can follow along with Shag without having to break out my original issues. Great score, Alan. That's awesome. You know how to shop, sir. Uh, we got a series of long posts over on our Facebook page from Alexandre Jose de Carvalho. I'm pretty sure I said that wrong. I sincerely apologize. But he left a, a long series of comments basically reimagining the JLI and how he would do it. Very interesting. Just go out to our site and read it. Then heard from David Robertson. He says, Hi, just discovered your podcast. I read the JLI series as it was being published. Really enjoying your show so far and look forward to more. Thanks, David. Welcome aboard. Then we heard from Marcus Sorois. I'm saying that wrong too, Marcus. Sorry. Because this podcast has been the highlight of my comic book related podcast listening each month. Awesome. Heard from Corey Corcoran. Says, Great listen, gentlemen. A couple of takeaways. One, you guys have some deep, 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 deep knowledge. And two, there are so many specific podcasts. It's crazy. I heard from Ronald Montgomery. He says, can you guys do a follow-up show for Bloodlines? If you can defend that crossover, you are the Clarence Darrow our country needs. <laughs> 
No, but you should check out Diablo Frank's DC Bloodlines podcast where he does talk about that series quite a bit. And he's sometimes he's supportive, sometimes he's brutal. So check it out. Heard from Douglas Briel. He says, The greatest era of all league history. I had to sell a lot of comics to pay rent at times. I sacrificed a lot of X-Men, but never Booster and Crew. Good choices. Heard from my buddy Jared Albrecht, who's the yard sale artist, who also, by the way, just started a podcast. Uh, it's called Comics with Normies. And you can, as in like a normal person, Comic with Normies. You can find that on the White Rocket Podcast Network. So very cool. Way to go, Jared. And I'm proud to say I, I believe I got him into the world of podcasting. So <laughs> you're welcome. Anyway, this is great new episode the JLI for the JLI podcast. And if you recall, Jared's the gentleman who jogs and runs while he's listening to the show. He goes, I'm back on track literally with 54 miles that he's run listening to uh, the JLI podcast. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Then heard from Derek Wyatt. He goes, listening to the JLI podcast, rekindling my love for DC and one of my favorite comic series ever. That's nice. Heard from Pop Culture Daddy. He says, hey, guys, just found your podcast. I'm excited to start listening. Because <laughs> one question, Guy Carter is the greatest Green Lantern of all time. Thank you. <laughs> no question there. Cracks me up. It was totally intentional, too. Well played, sir. Heard from Andrew in Belfast. He says, first up, JLI podcast, which is taking people through this great series. It's a great show. Loads of details. Thank you. Andrew. Appreciate that. Then my buddy Kichi Baker wrote in to say that the uh, in the in DC Injustice, they have like, if you know the Injustice, there, there's a video game, there's a comic series, it's sort of like a parallel universe. And he goes, it, the beer, in the, like, you know, alcohol, in the DC Injustice universe is called Wahaha Beer. He thought we should know. Thank you, Keith. That's awesome. He also sent us a link, uh, gave us a heads up that on the TV show Powerless, the new show, uh, they, uh, they've added the character of Fire. So it's Green Fury, uh, played by Natalie Morales, but right as of right now in this recording it's anyone's guess if powerless uh, is going to get renewed or not Heard from Jake Muir, he wrote in to say that the uh, that there are new issues of JLI on Comicsology. So uh, thanks for giving us the heads up. I took a look, and it looks like they've got most of the issues of JLA through issue 46 now out there, and up through issue 19 of Justice League Europe. You might find a couple of ones that are missing, but for the most part, you can get almost all. Then also, Hometown Geek wrote in to say, Justice League International is the best. Looking forward to listening to this podcast. Thank you. Heard from Joel DePippa. He goes, if you're a fan of the pathos and comedy of the Bwahaha era of Justice League, you really should check out this interview. Thanks, Joel. That's very nice of you. Then we got some advanced feedback on this issue, the one Kyle and I are covering right now, issue number 11 of Justice League International. I posted the cover, basically said we're getting ready to record it, and got some feedback. And uh, Lucien Dessar says, awesome, I have to read that issue this weekend prior. I've been reading them in sequence all for the first time along with the show. That's so cool that he's reading the comic with the show. Thank you, Lucien. I appreciate that. Uh, Michael Roberts said, ah, one of my favorite McGuire JLI covers. Now, that's interesting, because earlier I had posed the question, was this a great cover? And I'm just didn't you know uh, appreciate it because I didn't have enough exposure to it, or was it just sort of a mundane cover? But here you go, Michael Roberts says it was a great cover. So him and Kyle both said it. So I'm wrong. You guys, you can mark that in your books. I don't admit to being wrong very often. This is the one time. And after I get done editing this podcast, I'll take this right out. Uh, then we also heard from Abel Padilla, who says, because <laughs> remember, it's it's the giant robot hand holding the Justice League members. Because this should be an image for an article on how not to handle your action figures. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Also, throughout the month, got lots of nice comments from some folks. Not going to read all those comments, but I just want to say a quick thanks to Philip Douglas, Dan Schwab, Aaron Head Moss, Mike Hargreaves, Dean Jones, Patrick Pence, Robert Solonovic, Dale Dale, Laura Mountain Flower, Chris Sheehan with Ace Comics, DC in the 80s, Luke Dobb, the Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond podcast from the Pulp Pixel Network, 
Generation X-Wing Podcast, Brian Yardley, and Pop Culture Vulture. Thank you, folks. All those really nice comments, and they're sincerely appreciated. All right, folks, up next, we've got something really special. We are giving out an award. We don't do this very often. It's usually for something pretty big, and this one, in my opinion, counts. We are giving out the highly coveted and deliciously tasty Double Stuff Award. And this one's going out to our friend Martin Gray. Martin sent me a care package, and folks, this is stunning. He sent me three copies of Superman Magazine, which Michael Bailey referred to earlier, which is a UK reprint series. And it is a Superman Magazine issue, let's see, 35, 46, and 47. And they reprint Justice League International number 9, that's the uh, Rocket Red issue of the Millennium Crossover, and then Justice League International number 18, which is with Lobo, which is uh, the, which leads to Guy Gardner getting his memory back. And these are sort of oversized, like magazine size, and they're printed on nice paper, and the coloring is sharp, it's been recolored. It is gorgeous reprints of the Justice League International stories, and it's got Superman stories in the front, and uh, it, these things are glorious to behold. Absolutely stunning, and uh, I can't thank him enough. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate it, Martin. You totally deserve the Double Stuff Award. The, the only downside of this thing is, I mentioned they're UK reprints, so the text is entirely written in the British language, so I, I really can't read a word of it. But other than that, these are the best. So thank you, Martin. Please enjoy your Double Stuff Award. It is double tasty. All right, folks, now I want to say a thank you to everyone who shared our show on their social media timeline on Facebook and Twitter. This is, as I tell you every month, this is a very long list of names. However, these are the folks that showed their support and promoted the Justice League International podcast. So it's important that we recognize them. A lot of these folks won't get mentioned otherwise. And our community is growing, folks. This time we're looking at well over a hundred names. Oh my gosh. Well, the 30th anniversary really gave us a nice bump. Uh, Michelle Fife, you know, he's a creator with a large following. J.M.D. Mateus, very large following. So we got a lot of extra uh, retweets and such. So I'm going to start running through these names. Here we go. First up is Mr. J.M.D. Mateus himself. Thank you for promoting the show. And Aaron Head Moss, Adam Deschel, Al Gerding, Andre Oliveira, Andrew in Belfast, Dr. Ange, Aquaman Shrine, Boss from the First and Strike Invasion podcast, Bat Shaparak, Becoming Finnish, Beatlemania, Between the Pages, Boosterific.com, Brad Dade, Brian Yardley, BXA, Guido, Callum Nauer, Captain Marvel Talk, Cash Flag, Charlton Hero, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Schmidt, Closeout Comics, Codeman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comic Social Club, Comics with Normies, Corey Hodgson, Dale Russell, Dallas Gibson, Dan Schwab, Daniel Butnick, David Ace Gutierrez, David Byer Jr., Derek J. Wyatt, Diablo Frank, Dork Times, DS and RS, Element M9, Frederico Hernandez, Gabriel M. Cox, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Hawkworld, Paul Hicks, Imperfect Future, It's Plastic Man, J. Ramona Solera, Jack Dower, Jacob Edwards, James Coates, Jared West, Jared Albrecht, Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Popcast, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Justice's First Dawn Podcast, Kichi Baker, Con L, Court Industries, Kyle Benning, oh, we know who that guy is, Lauren Mountainflower, Load Comics, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Mark Baker Wright, who probably enjoyed the Transformers talk this episode, Martin Gray, Matches Baloney, Matthew Thomas Cody, Messed Up If True, Michael O'Brien, Michelle Fife, Mike Alvarizzi, Mike Hodges, Mike Peacock, Mikey Flash, Mo Walker, Mr. Dave Cabal, Noah Tipton, Not Guano Man, Ali Almedia, Pat Sampson, Patrick Pence, Pod Dillon, Process Party, Raul Austin, Richard Field, Rob Kelly, Rod Pruitt, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Saturday Detention Podcast, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Super Oli, 
The 108th Sage, Tim Price, Tony Wolf, Trekker Talk, Van Z, Viz New Ganon, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, We're All Monsters, Willie Yarbrough, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zoom Yukonori. Wow. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It was probably Michelle Fufay's fault if I did. Just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming. Our website again is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post. That's the best place. That's where most conversations happening. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, again, Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast. Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. Or you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Michelle Fife for helping to cover Justice League International number 10. And a tremendous thank you to JMD Mateus for agreeing to appear in the 30th anniversary episode. Fantastic guests. And thank you to the listeners for such great collection of feedback on those episodes. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break and when we come back, hopefully our buddy Kyle will have tracked down his repossessed recording studio. Hello there. This is Jared Albrick, aka the Yard Sale Artist with a quick podcast promo for my show, Comics with Normies. Here's how the show works. Using my yard sailing skills, I acquire a random comic book from a yard sale. I then give said random comic to a normie. A normie being a person who doesn't normally read comic books. Then, on the show, I'll sit down with the normie to discuss the issue. Get a real outsider's point of view and see what some of the comics that we love, and maybe not love so much, seem like to those normal folks we see walking around on the streets each day. It should be a fun perspective and good for a few laughs. You can check out the Comics with Normies podcast, along with some other fun-filled podcasts from White Rocket Entertainment, on iTunes and at whiterocket.podbean.com. And feel free to join the show using Twitter handle at Normies Podcast or on Facebook at Comics with Normies. Once again, you can find Comics with Normies on iTunes and at whiterocket.podbean.com. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Annuals, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Crisis on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blog headquarters. Available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word. Kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. 
All right, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it appears Kyle is trying to catch his breath, but he does appear to be here. Kyle, how'd it go, buddy? Not good. My uh, car, while in the back of the tow truck, got smoked by a semi. Oh. Who knows what? I'll get an episode out next. Oh, no. Oh, the JLI podcast ruined your podcasting career. It's probably because you were mean to me. Maybe it's cosmic karma getting back at you for being so mean to me in this episode. Yeah, I guess so. Well, if nothing else, it's going to prevent me from throwing you in my trunk like you threw me in yours. <laughs> I don't know. You've had two opportunities. Literally, I have sat in your car twice now. You've had a chance to do that both times. So I see. Yeah, well, the last time the kiddo was along, and I don't really uh, want to introduce him to uh, a felony there at the, the ripe age of two years old. <laughs> Not just yet. Maybe in a couple of years. Yeah, that's more like a 13th birthday type of thing. There we go. Well, folks, uh, I want to thank Kyle. Uh, I don't really mean it, but it's written in the script, so I have to say it. I'd like to thank Kyle for appearing on this episode of the Just League International Podcast. Kyle, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs. Well, I have done a, a number of episodes past on my uh, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. Right now, I'm kind of just taking a break from podcasting, so uh, I don't know uh, when I guess I'll be doing any solo efforts on any of those sh- shows on that feed, but uh, actually I have some uh, guest spots coming up on other shows on the Fire & Water uh, Podcast Network probably uh, the same month that you're hearing this, so bring up uh, four appearances on this feed in 2017 and none of my own, so... I got that going for me. <laughs> well, tell them where they can find you on the Twitters and the Facebooks. Uh, on Facebook, I have a couple different pages. You can go to uh, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, which I believe the uh, direct URL for that is facebook.com slash comics retro review. You can also search for my Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour uh, podcast page there on Facebook as well. And on Twitter, I have like five Twitter handles, but that's still like 10 less than Rob Kelly or the other <laughs> ones. So. You can follow me at Kyle Benning Art, which is the KSC GSF podcast. Uh, you can follow the Superman Captain Marvel Power Hour Twitter feed that is uh, Krypton's Wizard. And I also kind of have a Transformers specific one where I tweet things about Transformers, and that is at DCOM's Retreat. Oh, I didn't even know about that one. I, the other ones yeah. I was kind of familiar with, but wow, all right. And then there's a couple more if you search for Kyle Benning that you may find that he's apparently lost the password to, so you can't respond to those. Yeah, there's one that's like a personal one that I just do stuff on that pretty much. Okay, there we go. So mo- most listeners aren't going to have a, an interest in that. <laughs> Are you trying to say comic book people aren't sports people? Really? I hadn't noticed. I, I would say if you looked at a Venn diagram, the cross section there would be pretty small. <laughs> it's you and Kichi Baker, and that's about it. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thanks again to Kyle. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to ask you folks at home, please come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 12. It's the one-year anniversary issue, and it's a doozy, folks. And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Sorry, folks. Surely you know how this works by now. You're going to have to wonder for the next month. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Kyle. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?